people in our internet like to catch it later. So just know that the recording is on now. We're going to take Q&A. The question is, why do you not yet feel yourself to be the self? Why don't you know with conviction that you are indeed the immortal, unchangeable, transcendent spirit? Um, and we're going to start with Leah. But if you want to share something or say something you don't want to have on camera, just tell me. Uh, not camera or like recording. I'll just I'll pause recording, okay? So just note the recording is on. And if you don't want it to be recorded, tell me. I'll pause recording. All right, Leah. Welcome. Okay. Um, this is why. When I am feeling awake and energetic, it is, it's relatively easy for me to remember my awareness as my true self. And as I get more tired, it's like that ability becomes more difficult. Mm. And so I feel as though if I'm not my body, why does this, why does as my body get tired, this awareness sort of feeling like it, it does, it's not, I don't know if it's that the awareness gets tired, but my ability to connect with it almost yes. gets tired. Oh man, this is going to be a really productive session. I can already feel it. So when you ask questions like this, now we can, we can really do something here. Okay, follow this closely. First, I have to stop you there when you said my awareness. Okay, be careful. It's not your awareness. Because if it was your awareness, then to whom does that awareness belong? If not awareness. So it can't be your awareness. That awareness is what you are, yeah? So if we say my awareness, then there's a bit of problem. Anyway, let's say, okay, awareness. Your point is excellent. It's a really important point because if I am awareness, I should be aware of that, right? Like if I'm awareness, why am I not aware that I am this awareness in each and every moment? It seems like this unchanging awareness of yours changes, right? You found perhaps a serious concern, which is this awareness is by definition unchanging, yet you feel that it's changing. What's going on? Okay, so follow this closely. This is very important for all of us. Whenever we have a doubt like this, this is typically what's going on. We have conflated awareness with mind. So I want you to visualize now the night um, on a full moon night. You see by light of the moon, yes? So you're out in the world and you're walking around, not a city because there are other artificial lights, but like some rural place where the only light that illumines your way is this full moon. And it's a wonderful, resplendent, and eldritch light. Now, one gets the impression that the moon is a luminary body. It's, it's very possible to feel like that light is coming from the moon. The moon is, in effect, illumining all that I can see, so it must be the moon's light, right? Upon further reflection, pardon the pun, we realize that no, the light doesn't belong to the moon. It comes from the sun. So the sun's light reflecting off the moon illumines the world before me on a full moon's night, which is tomorrow, right? I think. So um, what's going on there? In terms of awareness, mind, and world, we see this world. I experience the body and I have my existence as I know it, my life, because I am seeing with a borrowed splendor. My mind is the moon and me, awareness. I am the sun. So this awareness, this sun, emits its awareness onto the mind and the mind emits that onto the world. So I'm not really, uh, as I right, at, right now am experiencing the world, really seeing it purely as awareness. I'm, I'm seeing it as awareness reflected off the mind. Now, when I feel tired, when I go into deep sleep, when I enter into a dream, when I drink a cup of coffee and I feel fresh, when I suffer from Alzheimer's, when all of these changes occur, they are changes not in awareness, but in the mind that reflects it. Okay, so if I notice a diminishing of light, 
it's only because the moon is waning, not because the sun's light is diminishing. That's the insight right there, Leah. That's it. Once you know that, oh, if I become sleepy, it's not awareness that's going down. It's the mind's ability to reflect awareness that's going down. Okay, that's the key insight. But wait, we can do better. And this is an even more important point. If you have Tattwa Jnana, it will still be there when it's a new moon night. Okay, this is the most practical point I could possibly convey to you. It doesn't matter whether or not the mind is reflecting your true nature of awareness if you are firmly convinced of your true nature. The example we used last week, or two weeks ago actually, was the mirror. So let's say you never knew, Leah, that you had a face. You know, you were wholly unconscious of your face. So radiant, you know, and you didn't know that you had this radiant face. And you saw it in a Zoom screen. So now you can see yourself, right? In the Zoom screen, you're like looking at Leah and you're like, yeah, that's my face. I see it. I, 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 I'm comfortable now because I know I'm seeing my face. And then you go to a mirror and you see your face and again, you're comfortable. Like, okay, I'm... This is assuming you don't know you have a face, right? So in the event that you don't know you have a face, it is only when your face is being reflected that you feel like you have a face, no? But if you knew that you had a face, if you were convinced through perhaps feeling it or just knowing it, then even when the mirror was smudged, cracked, broken, or absent, it wouldn't change that you have a face. So if you knew you had a face, you would not only be very calm about the absence of mirrors, but you would also be calm about any smudging or cracking or changing of the mirror. So when you drink a cup of coffee and you feel fresh, ah, I'm the awareness, ever free, ever pure. When you feel drowsy at the end of the day, ah, I'm awareness, ever free, ever pure. Do you not feel that you are aware of both the drowsiness and the alertness? So awareness hasn't changed. That you are aware never changes. What you are aware of can change. Oh, you're muted. Sorry. I can't hear. Yes. I just said thank you. Thank you so much. Especially the what you said about like um the phases of the moon and how um whether or not there's a full moon or a crescent moon or a new moon, the the brilliance of the sun doesn't change. It's just a repositioning. Um that was really helpful for me. <laughs> Good. So this question was really helpful for us, Leah. So thank you so much for asking it. Because, you know, if we can just be honest about where we are in the process of integrating this material, we can, oh my God, like in one conversation, have the insight that we need that will permanently for the rest of our life change the experience of being in this body and this world. <laughs> yes. And that to me is thrilling. So thank you, Leah. And welcome to our community. You know, how did you find us? Um, One of my friends sent me a TikTok like, maybe four months ago. And so I've been listening to, I was listening to YouTube videos for a while and then um, I'm starting the podcast from moment one. So I'm like um, still in the very first few, but I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. Yes. And we're very grateful to have you. Remember in our discord, we have that reading list. So if you want, there's like a bunch of books there that, so you, while you listen to the podcast, you can read the books. And that way, as you know, the best way to do this kind of thing is immersion. We just have to immerse our, ourselves in, in this way. It's, you know, you call it dehypnotization. For so long, I've been conditioned to see myself as this person, this body, this mind. And I've, unfortunately, for everyone involved, acted accordingly. <laughs> I've been a jerk. I've been selfish. I've used people. I've manipulated people. I've tried to control my surroundings and my environment to everyone's detriment, right? And I've been conditioned my whole life to think that. 
My whole life, everyone has reified this notion that I am a person for crying out loud. So now I have to do a lot of dehypnotization just to see reality as it is, to undo all this hypnotization. So we have to do as much as I was hypnotized, that much and more I have to get dehypnotized until I can stand with naked reality before me um, and no preconceived notions. And in this moment of pre-discursive, non-cognitive immediacy, I know myself to be what I always were, and what I always, what I always was and what I always will be. Pure awareness, ever free. Nothing can change that. So thank you. Beautiful. Yes. Okay. So I see uh, Jachika here. Jachika Ji, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much. I just wanted to clarify something from Leah's question. So what I'm kind of hearing is like intelligence or your mind isn't needed to know yourself. So like the, the function of discrimination isn't necessary. For, like say at the time of death, will I know myself? Okay. So when you have a, and Sri Ramakrishna was very fond of this example, when you've been pricked by the thorn of ignorance, so lack of discernment, when the intellect is, let's say, impure or scattered or confused, when the intellect is riddled with agyana, lack of knowledge, or avidya, lack of understanding, then the only way to get rid of that splinter of ignorance is to apply a second splinter, the splinter of knowledge. Right? You have to use another splinter. To, so I take discernment. I take viveka. I take a purified intellect. I take keen insight. And I use that to get rid of the first splinter. Do I keep the keen insight, intellect after? I can throw it away. It's done its job. Once my viveka reveals to me the truth of my being, then I have no need for that intellect anymore. So even at the time of death, and like I say, nothing of death. What about like Alzheimer's, right? I mean, Swami Savaprinanda, um, We've had the wonderful privilege of having him here at the Vedanta Temple Hollywood, and some of you have come for the talk, and it was wonderful, right? Um, and he has a talk in which he expresses something like about this question with regards to a great monk who was losing his intellect, meaning he was getting to the later years of his life, and he started to forget a lot of stuff, and he was no longer as clear, as lucid as he used to be. Now, this was a great tragedy, because as Swamiji was saying, this monk in his youth and all throughout his life, was like a renowned scholar of Vedanta, with a keen and piercing intellect, with a great memory of scripture, who could just kind of, you know, quote the Upanishads. He, would, he wouldn't just say, Danur Grihitva Upanishad Maha. He would go, oh, Danur, he would say the whole Mundaka. He was just like, I guess, you know, a really astute, scholarly man. And towards the end of his life, he was starting to lose that. He was losing his discernment. He was losing his intellect. He was losing his memory. Okay, so that's one case. And compare that to another person. So Swami Vivekananda also saw a second person, and I think this was in the West, a philosopher who, like the Swami, was a renowned uh, thinker and speaker and also someone whose entire identity was premised upon his intellect. Now, in the same way that that Swami was losing his intellect, this philosopher was also, maybe through Alzheimer's, forgetting. And This philosopher, though, was thoroughly depressed. His entire sense of identity was based on that. And now that it was going away, he himself felt like he was going away. He was so miserable towards the end of his life. However, the Swami, he seemed to be getting happier and happier as his intellect became dimmer and dimmer. So Swami Sarvapirandaji, struck by this tremendous difference between similar cases, but different kind of feeling states, went to the Swami and said, Swami, aren't you um, upset? Aren't you like distressed that all that you knew, all your Vedantic knowledge is slipping away from you? And this Swami apparently, and I think I'm paraphrasing, smiled and said, 
let it go, my boy. It's done its job. Isn't that striking? Let it go. Your intellect has revealed to you the only thing worth knowing that you are the self. Once you know that, whether your intellect is fresh or not, who cares? But I will say this, in the process of embodying and integrating and living according to what we know, meaning nididhyasana, in this process of nididhyasana, we have to apply discernment again and again and again. So as Shankaracharya says in Aparokshana Bhuti, muhur muhur. Okay, Amanda, take care. <laughs> Losing weightfulness, yes. <laughs> so muhur muhur, you know, again and again, over and over, unceasingly, right now, are we doing it? Right now, you have to ask, to whom is this experience occurring? In whom is this experience occurring? Right now, what am I? What do I feel myself to be? If, am I the boy? Like that. You have to keep doing it. So if I keep looking at the world and I'm saying pot, 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 you know, I should be able to say, no, it's clay. And pot is nothing other than clay. So I, in my sadhana, would have to, at least in the beginning, use my intellect all the time. That's the path of jnana yoga. So the use of intellect is to get the conviction, tattva jnana. Once the tattva jnana is there, then the intellect is no longer necessary. And to your point about death, if I die, having had tattva jnana, whether I die in an ICU or in a temple, that tattva jnana will never leave me. Thank you so much. Welcome. Excellent question. Wow. Thank you. And welcome to the community, um, Jajikaji. Again, how did you find us? And, and uh, we're, we're happy to have you. So welcome. Um, I came across your video on TikTok and then I clicked on the bio and saw there was a Zoom. It just came to me and I was like, yes. And I just joined this morning. So and have you had you like, for having it sounds me. like, of course, of course. And it sounds like you've had some experience <laughs> with this stuff before. You've, you've listened to yeah. lectures. Yeah, so I've heard some of, yes, some lectures online, um, mostly from YouTube and stuff, so. Good, good. All right. Wonderful. It's very important at this stage of our journey that the Sangha knows each other and that I know you and that we can together like slowly go and address things as they come up. So that's why I'd like to meet all of you. So thank you, Jajikaji. Beautiful. All right. So Justin G never gets his question asked, but today is one of those rare days. Kat, I hope that you won't mind if I take Justin G's question. <laughs> so we're, we're on a roll. We're like getting these done. So I'm happy. Yes, Justin thank G. Thank you for taking my question. <laughs> Um, I don't know. This is just rehashing what you said in your lecture already. But um, if you already have the realization of Tatagyana, what is really the purpose of psychic control? If you okay, if you perfect. Great question. Does spiritual practice stop after Tatwagyana? What is the meaning behind anything? If you have this highest realization, well, shouldn't I just go back to like just being in the world and making money on Wall Street? And you know, right? <laughs> Why would I need psychic control? Why would I need worship or work or any of that? But Are you asking me? <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> well, I could be asking you, but you're asking you. Yeah. So, well, we, funnily enough, we're having just this discussion yesterday and we were, you know, asking, well, is there room for spiritual practice post enlightenment? And the answer is absolutely yes, because typically when one has Tattva Jnana, one is also in that same breath, really inspired to do spiritual practice because 
The more spiritual practice you do, the more your tattva jnana will be reflected in the mirror of the mind and body and the more abiding and like sensory that experience will be. So not only will you know yourself to be the self, but you will feel that way. And that's really valuable, you know? So like we said earlier, if you understand this, if you get tattva jnana, all religion in the world makes sense. Once you know that God is awareness, you'll read the Quran and you're like, oh my God, this every word in this is true. You'll read the Bible, even the Old Testament and be like, this is perfectly understandable to me now, right? Like when the burning bush says to Moses, when, when Moses was like, what are you? The burning bush very clearly says, hey, share, hey, I am that I am. I am. I am awareness. I am. I am. I amness. And once you know this and you can look, oh, kingdom, Luke is saying kingdom of heaven is within you. Or the Quran is saying, and it may be a hadith, I forget, but God is closer to you than your jugular vein. All of that stuff starts to be poetical and allegorical ways to describe what is directly said in Mandukya Upanishad, etc., etc. So when you have Tattva Jnana, it doesn't, it shouldn't actually diminish your involvement with spiritual life. Actually, it should increase it. Now that you sense the truth behind spirituality, the common truth in all religions, you will pursue religious life more. Because wait, what is religious life? It's really nothing more than a life centered around awareness. Everything in religion, like selfless service, worship, um, meditation, psychic control, all of this are just ways to interact with awareness, to be with awareness, to rest in awareness. So because you know yourself to be awareness, you will just live with that as your priority. So in essence, if you have Tatwa Jnana, religion seems more legit, spiritual life seems more valuable, and therefore your engagement with spiritual life will increase. Second response, often when we have Tatwa Jnana, we might not have perfect integration. We might still feel like we forget, like it dims, like, oh, Richard, see, welcome. Oh, it's you, Richard, from Thursday. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you. for Thank you, Richard. Yeah, the questions are good. Thank you, gang. Thank you. Good day today. So yeah, I mean, if you if you get it, it doesn't mean that you have the other two, Vasanashaya and Mananashaya. And unless you have the other two, you won't be able to really reap the fruits of your Tattva Jnana. You'll know that you're Brahman, but it will do not too much for you in terms of your day-to-day experience. So in that, you will crave practices that help you integrate. So after Tattva Jnana, psychic control becomes more important than ever before because it helps you stabilize and stay with that insight. My third response is this, and it's the response that Swami Sarvapinanda gave yesterday when this exact question was asked, which was, what else are you going to do? Yeah, that's how I feel. That's what else I is feel. there? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. That, that is, that's how I feel anyways, but just from a philosophical standpoint. Right. And philosophically speaking, practices continue, but the reason and motive behind those practices have changed. So if before Tattva Jnana, I practiced because I wanted to be enlightened. After Tattva Jnana, I practice even more. Why? No longer because I want to be enlightened, but because it is a natural expression of the enlightenment I already am. You see? So I will continue my practices, but the why is different. Now I'm practicing because um, it's fun. Because it's just the most meaningful way I can spend my day. It's just the way that makes my body, mind, and life most harmonious, most beneficial to all beings. So if I have to choose something to do, I might as well choose spiritual life. It's the most beneficial to me and all my my fellow beings. But I don't need to get anything from it. And interestingly enough, when I already have tattwa, like this this is key. If I don't need anything from my spiritual practice, it's far more likely to be successful. Right, Kat? This is very important. 
if I don't need anything from anybody, if I don't even need my ishta to appear, they're more likely to. This is the crazy thing about the path of knowledge. It's like, I'm more likely to see visions. I'm more likely to have samadhi. I'm more likely to experience bliss. I'm more likely to have success in spiritual life. For the exact same reason, I'm more likely to get a girlfriend when I'm not looking for one. You've noticed this in high school. All of you have had periods of your life where you were desperate for a partner. And that was the time in your life where either partners were lacking or um, the partners that came were crap, right? Because you wanted a partner, you had shitty ones or a complete absence of partners. The harder you tried, the worse it got for you. Meaning the more you needed partnership, the less likely it was that you would have it. But then you suddenly decided, nah, girl, I'm fine as I am. You know, you suddenly felt like, no, 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 I'm going to do single life and I'm going to, I'm going to kick single life's ass. I'm just going to have a great time by myself. And I'm not looking for anybody. I'm in this club to dance, not to mate. You know, when you start living your life like that, suddenly lovers are not few and far in between. Everyone senses your independence and integrity and wholeness. And then they want to be around you. And then it's so easy. So it's almost like when I'm not looking, that's when I'm most attractive. And when I'm in the market, that's when, I don't know, there's like a natural repellent. That's been my experience in high school. I'm sure you can all um, relate. I think the same principle is applicable, right? And yeah, it's how I met my wife too. I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm celibate now. Enter wife. <laughs> like, oh, I guess I'm going to be married and become a householder, right? <laughs> so yeah, the less you want it, the more they come. That's true with cats. It's true with dating. It's true with money. When fortune favors the bold. You know, Vivekananda said, fortune is a flirt. She'll chase you down if you don't care for her. You know, it's like something interesting. It's something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But why does fortune favor the bold? Well, when you say bold, what you mean is the one who is disinterested in it. One who doesn't care about fortune has more of it than they know what to do with. Because they, they're caring about something else. They're caring about their business, not about the money they're going to. Have you met those business people who are more into the money than the business? They're never as successful as those business people who just love what they do and would be doing it even if they were flat out broke. So notice this. If you don't want money, it comes. If you don't want lovers, they come. If you push the cat away, it jumps into your lap. Similarly, if you don't need anything from your spiritual life, if you're doing it just for fun, if you're doing it just because it's the most beautiful way to spend your day, ah, now you'll notice that's when success comes. Don't be despo. That's what we say in the path of knowledge. Have some self-respect. You know, don't be despo. Just like know that you are the self. Be convinced and continue. Continue fervently with rigor and, and fervently. Of course, it's a little different in the path of devotion. Today, I'm coming to you as a jnani, of course. You know, I'm coming to you from jnani central. Our, you know, the path of devotion, it's a little bit like, well, I haven't seen you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like another day has passed and I haven't seen you. <laughs> You know, and then more importantly, when the experience comes and experiences goes away, you know what these bhakti people do? They love that. They're like masochist, right? Because not only do they, I know cats running, not only do they enjoy having experiences, you know what I think? Sorry, I'm just, I'm poking fun at myself and everyone, but not only do they enjoy having experiences, what they enjoy even more, I think, is those experiences going away because then they'll write poems about it. They'll sing beautiful, heart-rending songs about Krishna, Krishna going away. So not only are they attached to having it, they're also attached to not having it. And it's wonderful. It's a path, you know? It's, it's its own path. And the path of bhakti, like, says, no, longing. You know, Kabir says so beautifully. He says, um, you know, in the quest for the divine or for the beloved, 
he uses different words like the gardener, the guest, the beloved. In the quest for the beloved, it is the longing for the beloved that does all the work. No, no. It is the intensity of the longing that does all the work. Look at, look at me. Kabir says, look at me, and you will see a slave to that intensity. I love that line. You have to intensely long for a vision of your divine. But wait a minute. That's exactly the same as in the path of knowledge. Okay, so in the path of knowledge, Jnana, you have to intensely with all of your being want to know. I want to be the self. I know that I'm the self. Why isn't it coming? I want it now. You should have that vibe. Like right now, if you don't feel like you're the self, ask, why? What's your problem? You have to feel that way. Like, what's my problem right now? Why don't I know? Why am I not convinced that I'm the self? So you have to want it. We call it in the path of Jnana, Shankara calls it mumukshutvam, intense desire for liberation. In the path of knowledge, it's an intense desire for conviction and for knowing. In the path of bhakti, it's actually the same thing in an indirect way. You know that God, although you've set it up, and, and by the way, in the path of Jnana too, the self is it's almost set up as another. You know it's me, but I'm, I'm still, I, I haven't found it. So in bhakti, if I do set up Krishna or Kali or whatever as the other, it's only because it's a placeholder for that which I consider to be most valuable in my life. The source of all bliss, the source of all beauty, the supreme object, right? So that's, that's God. God is the supreme object in the bhakti. It's not even an object. It's beyond all categories of subject and object. I want that. I want that so badly, you know? But what happens when I get that? I get jnana, no? So look at Sri Ramakrishna. He went through the whole range of spiritual experience, right? He started by stomping his feet until Kali showed up. Then what happened? Kali was the obstacle to his nirvikalpa samadhi, right? If you read the Lila Prasanga, you'll see that Kali was as much a hindrance to him as a help in his later sadhanas. And you know what he did? He took the sword of discrimination and he slashed his mother in two. What? For the first part of his sadhana, he was rubbing his face on the floor until it bled, Takoji, right? Until it bled, he was rubbing his face on the floor because he couldn't see his mother that day. He had a taste, you know, a taste of Kali, and then she left. And that taste of Kali intensified his sadhana. And then it got to the point where he was having frequent visions of her every day. And it was wonderful. He'd be filled with bliss. He would talk to her. He would hang out with her. She was more real to him than anybody else. And that's why he could say to Swami Vivekananda, God is real. You can speak to God. God is more real. I see God more clearly than I see you now. Ananda Mahima said the same thing. And so this idea that, oh, he had that. He got the consummation of the path of bhakti. And notice he did all the moods. He, he practiced the Dasha mood and he became Hanuman. And he had this vision of, 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 you know, Sita Ram, he practiced the uh, Mathura Bhava and he had the vision of Krishna and, and Radha merging into him and all that. So he had all these experiences of the whole range of bhakti. And when it came time to do jnana, it was an obstacle. But it was a good obstacle because, you know, if you only think one thing, Kali, you only have one thing to drop. So it was easy for him. He dropped that Kali, he clove her in two with a sword. Mm. right? Can you imagine doing that when you meet your Ishta? That's why we get a bad rep, right? The, the Gyanis, like dry Gyanis, heartless. We would chop the head off our own mother. Yes, we would. And we'd do it again too. You know, that's the idea. And Ramakrishna had to meet such a man whose bhava I'm feeling a bit today, like that kind of Gyani bhava, which is kind of 
stern and, and it's got a kind of Purusha masculine vibe. Tutapuri was that, right? In spades, tall, strong, naked man, fierce, matted hair, big beard, scoffing at all religion, smiling and sneering at experiences because he had jnana, he had knowledge, you know? And Ramakrishna had to get that. He had to kind of transcend the dualistic path and get non-duality, which in the Ramakrishna mission all throughout, we stress is the highest experience. Non-duality is the highest experience. Everywhere you see that, you know, he had to master the dualistic experience to have that. So he even says there are two types of followers of the formless God, the immature ones who scuff at bhakti and the mature ones who understand that bhakti, the God with form is not different from the formless God. And that the God with form gives them an experience of the formless God. And interestingly enough, the formless God gives you the experience of the God with form. So what happened, Justin G, is that Totapuri had this like non-dual knowledge, right? But he was incomplete. So Sri Ramakrishna showed him that it can be both. Basically, it's called Vijnanavada, the idea that the world is real and God alone has become all this thing, all of this. So it's still non-duality, but it's a kind of non-duality that allows for still dualistic perception of Kali. So yes, he cut his mother in two to have this Nirvikapa Samadhi. He stayed in it for like six months. A monk used to come and beat him. And every time he got beat, he opened his mouth and the monk would shove food in just to keep his body alive, sensing that he had, you know, maybe a great mission to fulfill in the world or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, if he was left to his own devices, he might, of course, he's not left to his own. By divine commission, mother made sure that he came down from Samadhi, gave him blood dysentery even to bring his mind down from that high plane. But without the blood dysentery, without the commission from Ma, without that serendipitous monk that appeared to beat him, without all of his disciples rubbing oil down his legs to bring his mind down, without everyone who handed him the water or the tobacco or whatever the desire might have been to bring him down from Samadhi, the, he would have gone to Samadhi. He needed to keep his mind down. Forcibly, he kept it down in order to be with devotees, to talk with them, to teach them. It's Shiva. You know, Shiva is always blissful. But his compassion is that he comes out of this. He condescends to duality. Wow. So the trident just fell. It just jumped off the... <laughs> wow. Jai Shiva Shampo. But like the compassion to come down, right? The trident is on a pedestal, by the way. It came one of the tridents. The compassion to come down to, to people and say, oh, I'm in this high exalted state. And Shiva is Bolinath. He's so compassionate. He comes down to give us all of this. He gives us dualistic experiences, qualified non-dualistic experience, non-dualistic experience, and he transcends all of them. So that's the thing. So in the path of bhakti, yes, you're supposed to have this longing, but imagine how much sweeter bhakti would be with jnana. And I know that's not a traditional view because sometimes jnana is harmful to bhakti. Bhakti is always helpful to jnana, but jnana can sometimes be harmful to bhakti. That's why Sri Ramakrishna scolded Swami Vivekananda for giving Swami, uh, you know, Kali Maharaj gave Abedahananda that, and it changed his whole life. He had, and by the way, something Swami, I went to Swamiji house and I sat and meditated in his room. And I, I don't know, like, if you get the chance, go and meditate in that room because Oh my God. I think it'll make a jnani out of all of us. There's something about the Tan Matra in that room where you're just like, oh my God, I am the self. Oh my God. I, I'm a lion. I'm going to roam the world like Swami Vivekananda. You know, it's called Vivekananda House. It's in Pasadena. And uh, you can call Swami Veda Rupanandaji. He runs that place. He's like the caretaker there and, and ask whether you can 
Mexico or whatever. It's in Pasadena. Okay. So my point here is being that's the path of bhakti and it's its own path. It has its own merit. And okay, yeah, maybe that long. But in path of jnana, we say, no, know it and then practice. Sri Ramakrishna said, tie the knowledge of Advaita to the hem of your cloth and then carry on with your practices. You know? Now, so Amanda, is Amanda still here? Because this is important. Oh, Amanda. Okay, Amanda. Okay, so notice this, right? When you look at Sri Ramakrishna's life, there's a lot that we can learn about his life. There was a lot of trial and error there. But also, we should be careful not to model our own life off of Sri Ramakrishna's life. Because Sri Ramakrishna is an avatar. He's a different class of being. What should we do? We should do what he told us to do. In other words, we should look to his teaching. And in his teaching, he teaches bhakti in a very interesting way. He, he teaches the resolution of jnana and bhakti. He says, the formless God is God with form. So, and the form, God with form is the formless. Then he says to the jnanis, okay, meditate on the form. God with form will take you to the formless. He says to the bhaktas, want God now. But then he says, the experience is, you can have it. It's wonderful to have, but there's something even deeper than that. God realization is deeper than that. He says in many places, you, you go beyond that. So let's look at that and say, there is always going to be benefit to being convinced that you are the self even now and then you do everything then you cry then you rub your face on the floor then it will all be sweet you know while you are crying for krishna you are peacefully crying for krishna you as a whole being with nothing to gain are crying to krishna for the fear sorry sheer joy of it you know one tear cried in vairagya is sweeter than all the joys of the world combined Ultimately, what is it to you? You're the self. But while you're here, the best game you can play is bhakti. Notice, now bhakti becomes a game. It's no longer a kind of torture. <laughs> it's playing. Dustin G, satisfied? It's playing. It's playing. Okay, good. This is a good segue for Cat because Cat uh, is our, my very important counterweight and counterbalance here. So if I go too far along the path of jnana, I depend almost solely on Cat to counterweight. So Kat, please, this is a good time to jump in. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm sure you anticipated one of my questions, Nesh. I was literally thinking about uh, Swami Abedananda, by the way, because whenever I attend these lectures, I feel like Abedananda, not to say that I was at the level that he was, but I feel the like kind of nervousness that like the jnana is gonna like somehow toy with the bhakti so your your answer there was really helpful i feel like you sense that um my other question is actually kind of an update on the meditation practice so i've been keeping it up for like i think a few weeks now and it's really interesting because i sense this kind of um it's not i sense a difference between like the cat that's like the cat I was used to being and then like something else like and that something else is quite joyful and nice but when the cat I'm used to being comes in she's fierce she's terrible to deal with I don't know if that's a um like a a common experience but my god I've been emotionally wrought today and this past few days I don't know if it's the full moon (laughs) but it's like when you meditate for a while and continue to practice, at least in my case, it's kind of made me more aware of my past experiences in a way that I hadn't been aware of before. And it's brought up some difficult memories to deal with. 
Um, I'm not going to share those or why they were difficult, but because they were, it makes the practice really strange. It gives it an interesting flavor because, oh, bye, Justin. Because a part of me is really exuberant and joyful about the practice. And when I go outside, it's like, it feels like just so beautiful and wonderful. But it's not necessarily even that a pendulum is swinging, but I can just feel the tightness of the past more acutely because I've I've interacted, not experienced, but interacted with a higher mode of perception. Number one, is that normal? Number two, <laughs> how do I deal with it? <laughs> you know, when it's a hot day and suddenly you step into an air-conditioned room for just a little bit and then you step out back into the heat, it somehow feels muggier and hotter and more miserable than it ever was before, right? <laughs> Yes. So of course, when you sit and meditate and you're absorbed in that other cat, which is really who you are, right? That self, that spacious, boundless awareness that is your essence nature, you walk into an air-conditioned room. You know, nothing's a big deal anymore. There's relative fearlessness, easefulness, a sense of everything is all right. You know, wonderful. And then post-meditation, right, within several minutes or even during the meditation, there is, again, that very familiar occlusion where the blue sky was cloudless and striking. Now there are memories, thoughts, impressions. So clouds have come. And, of course, it's a favorite metaphor for meditators. The clouds have covered the sky. Now, even then, the most important thing, even then, you know that the sky is clear, ever is. So it's not like you've lost anything, you know? So you're the whole time, you're still in the air-conditioned room. So this idea of walking out of the air-conditioned room back into the heat is only a metaphor. It only feels that way, but it's not actually what's going on. It only feels like you're relapsing back into old cat, but you're not. You never were, never will be. There can be no such relapse. It's unreal. It changes. It comes in and goes. What is it to you? you know? So the important thing here is not to obey that under you, but this is how a jnani would approach it. It's no big deal. No, nor does it need to be affirmed. Doesn't have to, you don't even have to say, oh, is this normal? Can I check this against another person's experience of meditation? You don't even have to do that. Because if you do that, you're giving it more credence than it needs. Why give it any attention? It comes and it goes. It's a feeling state. What's it to you? The important thing is the practice. You come to the practice every day and you're loving it. I see you're doing your four sessions a day. Bye, dear Vernal. Good night to you. You're deepening your practice. You're staying with your practice. So that being the case, then you should be unimpressed by both ecstatic experiences. Of course, they should nourish you and inspire you, but ultimately they shouldn't shake you. And similarly, you should be unimpressed by the opposite, by the intensification of past traumas, the feeling of, oh my God, it's darker than it ever was before. It's not. It's just that the darkness that was already there is only made more apparent by the light that was previously unperceived and is now obvious. So of course it gets darker before it can get better. You know, if any, and by the way, what you've said, Kat, is probably true of anyone who's genuinely doing sadhana. And if you're not experiencing that, then you're not yet genuinely doing sadhana. How can it be a spiritual practice if it has not yet brought you into contact with things that are difficult to deal with, truths that are hard to face? There is some 
deconstruction that needs to happen. It's not always comfortable. Uh, people have gotten divorced over this. People have lost entire groups of friends. Of course, new ones come, but people have had to move states, countries for this. People have gotten very ill because of this. The body felt such cognitive dissonance with some new ideas that were coming in. And Dahlia, Dahlia, I realize I've been calling her Dahlia in the British style, but I actually met Dahlia. Now I know it's Dahlia. I'm glad you like the incense, dear. It's nice to have seen you. But um, Dahlia and I were talking about this. Why do you have to get sick? It happens sometimes, you know, Shaktipata and then body can't process it, gets sick, you know, what's, what's up? And the answer is, it's an overhaul of everything we thought was true. Of course, there's going to be cognitive dissonance. Of course, they're going to be, yeah, right? Like we get sick, we have flare-ups. I remember the day of my initiation, um, I like broke out. I had acne like I never had like until since I was like 16. I was like, oh my God, what's going on? It's so wild. And uh, my skin broke out. And that very day, my face attacked an eight-year-old's knee. You know, and my glasses, I was wearing glasses at the time. We were in a trampoline. So I had been initiated earlier. And then later I went to class. No, no, I had been initiated on Thursday. And then that was a Saturday class. So within a few days of my initiation, I was in this on a trampoline teaching my middle school class. We're jumping, jumping, jumping. And we're playing a game. And for some reason... The boy's knee connected with my face. The glasses shattered. There was like a cut here. A pimple had popped and there was like blood. And it was just, I was like, oh. And there was like five middle schoolers around me laughing. And I'm just there with broken glasses. I can't see shit. And there's blood on my face and like a bruise and like a black eye. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were like, ha ha. <laughs> And so sometimes these like little mishaps, they happen, you know, and, and it's true. It does get worse. And look at what Girish went through. He had a period of serious spiritual dryness. Now let's look at what Sri Ramakrishna says to um, Papa Purushan. What Sri Ramakrishna says to um, Swami Brahmananda. So he's going through something like this. Young Rakal, he comes to Sri Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna instructs him in meditation. He takes to it. And as you read in Eternal Companion, remember there was that period of time where he stopped meditating because it was too dry. And by that, I think he meant like, maybe he was feeling uncomfortable. He was not seeing the fruits of his practice. And even if he was, they were coming and going and maybe he was feeling dissatisfied, etc. Ramakrishna said, do you think a farmer can just choose when to farm and when not to farm? A farmer must tend to his crops, whether he likes it or not, day in, day out. Similarly, one swiftly falls from spiritual life if one ceases to meditate. Whether you're feeling bliss or not, stay with it, just do it. And so Jnani, a Raja Yogi, must say, whatever comes, whether I sit and meditate and a flare-up comes, an illness comes, maybe I'll rest, but I'll get back to it. Whether joy or ecstasy comes, even then, I stay with it. Many people, when they feel ecstasy, leave the practice. I did it. I saw light. Hee-hee, done. And some people, when they feel darkness, they leave the practice. In either case, light or dark, what's it to you? Say, Om Tat Sat Om. Thine only is the rope that Thine only is the hand that holds the rope that drags thee on. So seize lament, Sanyasin bold. Say Om Tat Sat Om. Oh, that's so that's so beautiful. Thank you for the song of the Sanyasin moment. I needed that one. That was awesome. <laughs> um, I wanted to. Uh, there was one more thing. Um, I guess this was more dealing with the emotional experience, and yes. in part, you did answer this question. But like as a bhakta, like are like you exactly like you said our spiritual paths are like ego masochism like we're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and in that waiting 
you see, I, I get, I get the vibe that spiritual life is great and good and fun and it is fun, but also like as a bhakta, sometimes it's really heartbreaking. Like sometimes it like really doesn't hurt in the same way. Like a worldly thing hurts. I take this pain over worldly pain any day, but it just becomes really acute when you begin doing Raja yoga. Maybe it's because you're so one pointed, but that kind of, I guess that's, that's like compounding the like other thing that I was talking about. I know. So, you know, what yeah. is it? Vedantic suffering? You know, Swami Vivekananda, no, Swami Sarvapananda makes this joke. He says, once you come to Vedanta, now you have all your usual problems plus your problem of I should know better or, you know, so you have a new suffering now, Vedantic suffering. So you came to this to get over suffering. You've only added more. So I like how you said, you know, it's just compounding the suffering in other places. No, it shouldn't actually. The opposite should be true because Ishvara Anurag Vishaya Virag. You know, that's, that's Ramakrishna's law. Ishvara Anurag Vishaya Virag. If I have attachment to God, then naturally I will have detachment for the world. All your other suffering, you know, your, let's call it secular suffering. All the suffering you experience in the other domains of your life are only there insofar as you're attached to something in the world. You know, you wouldn't be suffering those things if you were attached to God because they would be nothing to you. You know, so maybe you and I can meet one on one and you can narrate to me all these other things that supposedly spirituality is compounding. And I'll show you that they're not a problem, actually. Like your perceived problems aren't problems. And insofar, I know all of this is invalidation, right? <laughs> Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta is the great invalidation. Oh, so you it's, have a it problem. It seems so politically incorrect. Like, it's so but- I love it because it's so true. <laughs> it's so like, true. oh, you have a problem, is it? Hannah, we went to Boba yesterday after this incredible day at the temple, like the deepest day of non-dual immersion we've ever had in our lives. And we're at the thing. And I have this charter, which I just washed in the morning. And I'm very proud of how spick and span and white it is. And I went to Boba with the charter, you know, and I, I sipped the tea and it spilled on the charter a little bit or something. There was some stain or something like that. And I looked and I'm like, no, yeah. And, and Hannah looks at me and like, oh, the immortal self is whimpering. The eternal witness of all things is upset that his charter is stained. You know, and I immediately snapped out of it. I was like, oh yeah, fuck the charter, bro. It's an appearance in me. Okay, here's the thing. This stuff should never be publicly declared, right? I asked Swami Sarupin on that. What point does conviction become hubris? He smiled and he said, when you declare it to others. So I'm only talking to you like this, right? I'm talking about inner processes. You shouldn't go out into the world, grab someone by the shoulder and say, I am the immortal self. You know, you shouldn't look at your kid and say, don't talk to me like that. I am the immortal self. No, no, no. For all intents and purposes, in your day-to-day interaction, be a reasonable, regular person. Also, please be careful. Don't even talk about yourself in the third person. That's weird and cuckoo crazy, okay? If you go around the world and you're like, me, the Nish. No, I, the eternal witness of Nish, have to say that Nish is experiencing some hunger. So Nish, the appearance in me is now asking the appearance that is a lose to pass the salt, which too is but an appearance in Brahman, right? Like, what the fuck? Leave it. Just know, right? Know that you are the self. Say, I would like some salt. Hannah, can you pass the salt, right? It's as simple as that. But all the while, you know that I am the self. There needs to be no change in your speech. And I said to Swamiji, you know, I said, but Swamiji, we we speak as we think. 
So I'm not so sure about this double game because if I am convinced that I am the self, it just it changes my thinking. It also changes my speech. And uh, Swamiji, look, he gave me a sideward glance because we were walking. He gave me a sideward glance and he said, with this very cheeky smile that I will never forget, he said, um, it slips out. That he was like, it slips out. He said that. And then um, immediately we started talking about Sri Ramakrishna and how at times he would speak like a regular, most of the time he'd speak like a regular person. He was so personable, so grounded. Um, but every now and then he would say this body, this place, this one, that it would slip out, right? He was convinced that he wasn't the body. So he would say this body, this place. But most of the time he would speak as if he was just normal. So yeah, this is the disclaimer. I'm not saying, oh, like, Okay, you know, now say this. I'm the I'm the everywhere you go. Uh, you know, don't relax, chill. It's a very immature gyani is the one who's like great, chill, but inwardly you must have this conviction. So my point to you then, Kat, is so I'm like, say, Chadro, I need to remind myself if Hannah's not there to do it, it should be in me like, wait, I the self am freaking out about a charter. What? And you will notice if you do that, the, the thing dissolves. Now we were at, to your point, we were at Vivekananda house and there was a pipe, a relic, one of Vivekananda's pipes. He used to smoke out of these pipes and uh, we still have it and we use it in ceremonies. We put the pipe on a person's head, you know, and you get the touch and a contagion from the pipe. It's incredible. I can't describe it. So subtle. It's like such a subtle current. But the story about the pipe is there was a woman who was staying in this house. Vivekananda house in Pasadena belonged to this family and Vivekananda was a guest there. And they have all these great stories about how Vivekananda would come down with his hair tussled, freshly showered. He'd be wearing nothing but a bathrobe, you know, and stuff like that. Like cute stories about Vivekananda at home, playing with the children outside. Like just cute stories about him just being a regular dude, like that was personable and lovely and kind. Not to say nothing of his great stature as Shiva himself. It wasn't like he would walk down the stairs in an abstracted mood and then plop down in the middle of the living room in Padmasana and go into Samadhi. No, he walked down in his bathrobe, had some breakfast, was offered an extra egg to which he said, ah, women's business is to tempt men. Fine. So be it. I'll eat your egg. <laughs> like he was just a regular personable dude, you know, funny and sweet. Anyway, he had this pipe. Now he, he made it a habit to leave behind. And I was re- we were reading this, leave behind something of his in whatever place he visited. So it just so happened that he left behind this pipe. Now he had left that place and the woman who was staying there came down with a very bad illness. She got very sick. She had a, a lot of depression. She was very upset about the excruciating and unbearable pain she was feeling. So she had physical illness. She had a flare up, a physical flare up. And as a result, she had an emotional flare up. She was upset about that. Okay, so think of this cat. There's a woman in a house who is full of problems in her life. Her body is not being kind to her. Her mind is not being kind to her. She's afflicted, right? Okay, she goes to the mantle and upon the mantle is this pipe that Swami Vivekananda left behind. For some reason, she feels like picking it up and unconsciously almost, she holds it up against her forehead. She just feels inclined to do that. The moment she presses the pipe to her forehead, she claims that she felt the presence of Swami Vivekananda next to her and she heard him whisper into her ear this following line. Is it so bad, madam? And according to her, the pain went away, the headache went away, the depression went away. She was like, immediately she felt better. Just because Swamiji had whispered, is it so bad, madam? So think about that. Next time you're, you're feeling afflicted, and all of us do, right? 
We all take offense. Why is my body being this way? Why is my mind being this day? We take offense at our life not going smoothly. In that moment, you should be able to just hear Swamiji say to you, is it so bad, madam? So my advice to you, Kat, in dealing with this is read more Swami Vivekananda. You know, make it a priority. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would even say, get that picture. Try to get a black and white one as opposed to a colorized one. Get that picture of him in meditation like a Maharaja wow. seated there, place it, and then read his works in front of it. And actually, here's what you do. This is the sadhana. Before you read his works, you sit and you meditate upon Swami Vivekananda. Just see Vivekananda. Remember, he is the Shakti of Sri Ramakrishna. He's channelizing nothing but Sri Ramakrishna. So to meditate on Sharada, or Ramakrishna, it's the same. I'm meditating on Ramakrishna by meditating on Sharada. I can meditate on Ramakrishna by meditating on Vivekananda. So say I'm sitting, first meditate on Vivekananda. 10 minutes, not too much. Just like, just sit there and then read him and feel the power and strength coming through from, and then once you have that, you will never like balk at anything. You'll like scoff at the body, scoff. It's nothing to you. You'll hear all, every moment. Is it so bad, madam? Because that's one approach. Second approach is to recognize that this is a given. Don't take offense at the body flaring up or at the mind being depressed. That is the nature of the body and mind. Don't expect better from this world. The uh, again, Swami Sarvapinanda said yesterday, there's a monk who's very grumpy and miserable. Why? Because he's trying to make the world perfect. Don't expect spirituality to make some kind of utopia for you, as if somehow through spiritual practice, your body is going to be healthy or your mind is going to become. It's never going to happen. Look at all the great direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. What health problems they had. Oh my God, if only the new age community, the anti-vaxxer, no mask community could get a load of this, right? Because they're all under the delusion that spirituality is somehow a California diet regime. That somehow true spirituality is going to give you rock hard abs, great health and peace of mind. I'm sorry, but it's about a lot more than that. And it doesn't always imply that, you know? I can be just as spiritual in an ICU ward with a stomach ulcer that I developed from stress because I had applied myself to a children's education program in my city. You know, I can be stressed and, and, and like just depressed and in a psych ward. Okay, not in a psych ward, probably my psyche is <laughs> sorted. In an ICU, just as spiritual as someone who's like seemingly healthy. Yes, Swami Brahmananda said, give the body to the world and it will be swiftly destroyed. Of course. If you tear yourself apart over so many desires, of course, give yourself to God. Generally, the body will be protected in that you're sleeping earlier, you're waking up earlier, you're calmer, you're less stressed. Okay, generally speaking, there'll be less stomach ulcers. But hey, don't tempt God. Karma is karma. If you have karma for cancer, no amount of meditation will stop that. If you have a karma for stomach ulcer, I'm sorry, it's coming. You know, no amount of spirituality is going to keep your cancer away. It's coming if it's in your karma. Do you know this? Do you know that there are horrible illnesses waiting for you? What, you think you're just going to get to the end of your life and not see the crippling of your intellect, the debilitating of your body? You think you're not going to shit the bed when you're 65, if not sooner? Okay, all of us are going to lose control of our bowels. All of us are going to tremble and shake and see the body waste away. Nobody gets out alive. It's very despicable. So why do you expect anything different? That's another way of approaching this. But like, yeah, the body's nature to dissolute. It's the body's nature to shit itself. It's the mind's nature to shit itself. It's full of nonsense. Knowing this, relax, be patient, endure. It'll come and go. <laughs> I'm typing some scolding in the chat. 
<laughs> because really you're so right. You're so right. And just because you're like spiritual does not mean that you will not have those problems exactly like you said. And I think that helps me come to terms with it much more because I don't know. I was healthy and I lived so fast when I was a bit younger. Like I'm 21 now, but I lived really fast and did a lot of bad things to my body essentially from like, I think 17 onwards. So I feel like it's catching up to me. And this is only the beginning, but um, you and I are of the same ilk. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, you gotta, you gotta do all this. Like, like Ramakrishna says, it's like, you have to bite into it like when you're younger and go out and do all these stupid things. And then you just realize how ridiculous it was. It was just like the worst phase, like the worst rebellion phase you could have had, especially if you see God as Ma. Like you were like a rebellious teenager your whole life. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thank you so much. Really, absolutely. Watching the Swami Vivekananda live the other day, like I just happened to stumble upon it too, like as it premiered. And I was like, oh, I was just so happy because it just, I just felt it, you know, I felt that love and I loved hearing, you know, Swami C read and I need to read more Swami Vivekananda. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Nish. Thank you so much, dear Kat. I think this is a great, like, so some who are just reading Jnana stuff need to read more Bhakti stuff and some who are really into Bhakti. I would say, you know, read some Jnana stuff because it will give you the iron and the strength to withstand the tremendous power of Bhakti. And those who are in Jnana, Bhakti will give you the juice to withstand the dry spells. So they do go together. And Swamiji, Sri Ramakrishna, they're here to do that, to bridge the what in previous India was an unbridgeable gulf between the two, almost animos, animosity between the two, right? But yeah, you know, this is a thank you for bringing this up because a lot of people in the new age, and this, by the way, of course, will polarize a lot of people if I make that statement, right? And uh, because I think a lot of people expect spirituality to give them worldly shit. That's the problem. And uh, I would re read the, uh, go back to the lecture, Transcendental Happiness, because believe it or not, to this community of people you know, who I have in mind, um, who might be feeling this um, statement, there's more to life than physical health and mental equanimity. There's a transcendental happiness that is far sweeter than any of those two things, that even if those two things are there, this thing makes those two things sweeter. So if the body is healthy and the mind is calm, you'll be able to enjoy that even more if you have this transcendental happiness. And even if the mind and body, and this is a given, are broken, the transcendental happiness will still be there. But I'm taking a very Himalayan perspective with you. And I know that I should moderate a bit. And if I am to improve in hosting these sanghas, then I ought to offer something for everybody. I know it's a, everyone's on a different stage of their journey. And I know that my material is sometimes kind of hostile to those who are maybe at the beginning of their journey, who maybe do want health in the body. Good. I, I just want to say like, that's good. I'm a tantrika after all. Good. That's, that's Shiva's gift to give you Hatha yoga. You want money? You want pleasure? We've got rituals for that. Do the Lakshmi puja, you know, all that. Get that and finish with it. But it's not wrong to want those things. Want those things. Just, just note that spirituality is about a little more than that. That's the only thing, you know. But otherwise, forgive me. There's like a Jnana vibe. I think it's because we did the Shiva Puja. So I just feel this really strong Jnana vibe coming through right now. <laughs> and it's a sternness that I want to apologize for if it's rubbing anybody the wrong way. <laughs> but yes, I hope you enjoyed. Yes, dear Sidney welcome. 
I just wanted to say thank you so much for, you know, sharing all of everything that you've experienced and studied throughout life. I remember I went to your YouTube page and then I was like, oh, thinking I'll just watch one YouTube video and I'll get what I need to know and go on with uh, whatever. But it definitely did not play out that way. And it's just so fascinating. But bouncing off of what Kat said, um, I definitely resonate with that. You know, I remember when I was doing my teacher certification, I was in this phase of my life where I was around, you know, different people. And I was thinking like, oh, like if I do this, like this will work out. I'll look a certain way. I'll feel a certain way. And like, I'll be spiritual and, you know, I'll be this like great, whatever, but it really did not boil down to that. And, um, you know, I'm really thankful for the reading list and, you know, going through everything. Um, when I was reading, uh, Raja Yoga, I like, I didn't want the book to end. And then I've just found so many other ways to continue with my practice. And then, um, I was doing a lot of Kriya yoga and there was this Kriya it's called like suffering and duality. And I was doing it like every day and I kept going into Samadhi and I didn't know what like it meant. I was like, this is enlightenment. Like, this is so weird. Like just because I feel this rush of like nothingness and like this void, I was like, kind of like, huh. Like, what does that mean? So, you know, this lecture really helped out a lot because, you know, you really gave me the Sanskrit terms of everything. And it really just makes me even more excited to meditate after this than, you know, continue with everything. And thank you so much for always, you know, even giving the chance to experience your puja because um, my teacher... Uh, she really admired um, Krishna Makarya, and I was like, "Oh, like that's so cool!" I just, I just didn't really um, understand it at the at that space in my life. But you know, now I'm just really excited to continue to you know dive and explore and witness other shapes and forms of yoga, and it's just such a beautiful thing and. You, I was listening to a lecture and you were talking about um, how Tara is another shape and form of Kali. And I have this Tara book. And for me, it was just a little, it was a lot of talking about the mundane and the non-mundane. So I really resonate with your teachings. So I just want to say again, like, thank you so much for allowing such uh, bhakti to flow through me and um, it's just, it's so beautiful. So thank you for always just being so personable and poetic and funny and this and that, you know, netty netty. So thank you. How kind and encouraging of you to say, Sydney G. Thank you so much for your sweet words. The most important thing about you, Sydney, is your deep, deep passion and commitment to the, you know, once you have the Shakti path, you have the Shakti path, meaning once you feel the calling, it's really important that you give yourself the space and the room to plunge in as you're doing. Because there are some people, right, who would see a video, feel the calling, and then actually just go off in a different direction. But you didn't do that. You felt the calling and you plunged it. <laughs> the ocean called to you and you answered. 
So yeah, I, I, as, as much as you are enthusiastic the pra- about the practice, that many times and more, I pray that I'll be able to meet you at, at, at that level. You know, what, whatever you bring to the practice, that much and more, the practice will give back to you. And as much as I can facilitate that, I'd be happy to, you know. So um, the reading list is going to be very helpful, of course. And you're right. We just never want these books to end because they're so powerful. They're probably the most charged spiritual books. And, you know, it's not really even about what the books say. Of course, the ideas are profound and life-changing. But just reading the book, in some sense, being with what these people were saying, that alone is that channel, that conduit of bhakti. So it's so perfect. Exactly, Sydney, you're making a good point here, which is enlightenment is not an experience, it's a knowing. And so that's why this lecture is important to understand that like we all, insofar as we're convinced that we are the self and not the body and mind, to that degree, we can say we're enlightened. And we ought to say it because you know what? The thrilling thing about Advaita Vedanta and about Jnana Yoga is this statement. You are already free. You're free now. Claim it. And that's the, the thrilling thing. It's like just the, the gall and the chutzpah to say, yeah, I'm free. That is enlightenment, that conviction, you know. But it's but one step of a long process. And the experiences that we have definitely support and reify that conviction. How do you test it? You know, in the Himalayas, there are these monks that just like wander about. And I actually asked Swami Sarupananda this. I'm like, is the reason they're wandering about naked in the icy Himalayas really just so they could test the degree to which they know they are not the body and the mind. And he smiled and he said, yes, of course. But he said, you don't have to go to that extreme. Just see how, you know, this knowledge helps you in your life. Like without having to go to the Himalayas and wandering about in the icy cold with not but a single, you know, piece of cloth or without having to subject yourself to crazy austerity, life itself is the austerity. So the degree to which we are unflappable, absolutely calm and peaceful to the degree to which we can feel that that's the degree to which we have integrated our enlightenment. So the most important thing is that enlightenment, that is final, but what we're more interested in is the integration of that enlightenment. That's where all the practices come in. Right? So I'm the most important thing Sydney is enthusiasm. I'm so happy that you have that. And the terms are not that important. You know, some people that this, this is what this term means. For instance, Samadhi is a term that we very, very rarely use. I have never experienced Samadhi in my entire life. Not once have I touched Samadhi. I don't even know what that is. You know, I know what it is on a page of a book. I know what it is theoretically. I have never once experienced Samadhi, right? That's, that's important. I, I can't ever claim to have experienced Samadhi. Why? Because it's a very specialized state, but we say, ah, Vignana Bhairava, there are like these mini Samadhis, like moments where, you know, there's a, temporary glimpse into what it would be like to be without a body, without a mind. So you would say, Sydney, kind of momentary lucidity in deep sleep, right? Like a momentary lucid deep sleep. Real Like if you say samadhi, you know, what you're implying is that you don't feel the body, you don't feel the mind for days at a time. So you're just there in a meditation pose. And uh, like other people might have to feed you or like shake you or try to bring you down or, or something like that. And, and it's one of those states that is very rarefied and we generally tend to say we lock that word up typically so i would just advise you in like circles not to use the word samadhi although it could very well have been what we experience we generally like are on the side of caution and say okay that wasn't samadhi yet you know let's call it perhaps an absorbed moment an absorbed moment of meditation and intensification because if you feel peace that peace intensifies to sweetness. That sweetness intensifies to joy. And that, that's any, anybody 
who practices every day, sooner or later, we're going to feel that intensification of peace into joy. But it's not samadhi, not yet. You know. So samadhi, you have to be very clear that samadhi is the complete erasure of mind, body, and world, typically for a sustained period of time where all notions of time, space, and causality are gone. And I do think that can happen in small little bite-sized ways, but typically we wouldn't call that samadhi. Maybe a better word is samavesha. Samavesha is immersion into your identity as pure awareness. So use that word. And then secondly, yeah, the Sanskrit words don't really matter that much. But in trying to be precise, that gives not only a way to communicate, but also we can more likely experience those things which we have words for. So when we create these terms like Mananasya, Vashanasaya, especially in Tantra, we have so many words, Samavesha, Vishranti, all these different Sanskrit words to describe all these different phases in spiritual life. It actually prepares us for not only experiencing them, but integrate them after they've been experienced. So that's the important. That's the only thing I wanted to point out about um, the use of the word Samadhi. That's one thing. But more importantly is just keep practicing. That's the joy of it. So thank you for inspiring us, Sydney, to just stay with it. Yes. Yes. May all your enthusiasm treble. All right. Dear Brett G, welcome. Sorry. A little delay. You can hear me now. Is it all good? Okay. So I just uh, I I wanted to I had I had Ma Kali just serve me my ego on a platter the other day, and it was so amazing. It was the first time that I actually liked having my ego just like checked. Because usually it stings, and I kind of run away with my tail between my legs, like oh man. But this was this is the first time where I was like oh it feels so good. So I just wanted to tell tell you about it and then see if you could put it in context for me for like what the traditions say about this kind of experience because I don't really know what it was but um as you know the last couple times I talked to you I was like trying to challenge you on like deep sleep um and if there was anyone there and so I've been really just meditating a lot and especially going to bed like really trying to stay with that uh trying to be present and lucid in that kind of I don't know if I'd say deep sleep, but at least that threshold to deep sleep. And the last time I talked to you, I think I just said that I ding dong ditched the Ananda Mayakosha or some something like it was a very beautiful like threshold. And I went up to it and like I, I got scared because my intellect wasn't there. You know, um, my mind really wasn't there. A whole lot of the, the world wasn't there. Um, and I, I came to that kind of threshold again. And what happened this time, it's like I wasn't afraid it's almost like I didn't want to go home yet. Like I was like, I was playing outside, like I'm playing as a kid. And I was like, I don't no, I don't, this is more fun out here. And that was such an ego serving moment to me. Cause I had this idea of myself that I was miserable and that I hated life and that I hated being Brett and Brett's just, this isn't this. And I'm just a sad boy and whatever. And my life is uniquely hard. And to come to that moment where I was like, yo, I think I could like, go through this threshold and maybe have, I don't, I don't know, but it, it, I didn't, I didn't, I wanted to be out here. Like, do you know how crazy that is for a sad, like, do you know how humiliating that would be for a sad ego emo to be like, no, I love, I want to be in life, bro. I want to be out here. This is so fun. Like, why would you don't think I'd want to be on this little magic 
square talking to this Indian guy, Nish, who just knows all this shit, bro. Like, of course I want to come out here. It's amazing. So yeah, what uh, what do you think about that? Is that um, is there any like, can you tie this to any tradition or uh, give me some insight? <laughs> <into this? laughs> no, I feel very delighted about that, Brett. That we can be together here in pure enthusiasm, right? Like, ah, oh, how precious is life? No, I feel you on the kind of wow. This is so embarrassing that I'm having this much fun, right? Yeah. Like, I think here's the thing. I think all of us. To the degree to which we identify with, you know, Tumblr and being the emo kid, like whatever degree to which we identify with that, we all feel like we don't deserve the joy that comes with spiritual life. Because there's so much life affirmingness, so much joy, so much beauty that we almost feel a little suspicious about it. Most of us, I think. Yeah. We're like, oh my God, when are they going to take all my money? Or, oh my God, when am I going to lose my mind? Or, oh my God, what's the price I have to pay? When is the come down? Like there, there's a lot of anxiety around even joy. Yeah, it's like there was, um, I, I guess I thought of like, you know, maybe enlightenment, whatever that is, or something would be like this catharsis where I would be like, oh, this life is a state of like tension and like all oh, like this pain and suffering. And I just want to be like freed from it, you know, but then at least for a, a second, I, I saw it as the opposite where it's like, whatever was beyond the gate was kind of this like compressed uh potential or something and this no this is the uh this is the catharsis all of this this is the this is what's being sprayed out i'm trying not to use a sexual metaphor but this is it you know Um, i mean you can kind of see why ananda maya kosha gets its name right the bliss sheath yeah the bliss body because you know we can say it this way. If you want to refer to the tradition and um, scripture would say, Satchit Ananda is the absolute principle. Existence, consciousness, bliss. Sat, Chit, and Ananda, all three of them, they're all three of the same thing, but they're different. Maybe you could say aspects of one thing and they all reflect in different ways. So if I have a rock, I'm getting a reflection of Sat, but not of Chit and not of Ananda. Because a rock is not aware of itself. It's not a self-reflexive being. It's not a conscious entity, you know? People will disagree, right? The quartz people will be like, no, my crystals are maybe, I don't know. But at least we can say there are such things as inanimate objects, right? I think we can all agree that there are some objects that are inanimate. So maybe a rock is a poor example, chair, I don't know. In our everyday mundane experience, we would say that chair exists, but it's not conscious. That's fair, right, Brett? It mm-hmm. exists, but it's not conscious. You could say it's reflecting sat, being. It's not reflecting chid, consciousness, nor is it reflecting ananda, bliss. Now, anything with a subtle body has the capacity to re- reflect both chid, uh, sorry, both sat and chid. So a plant, an animal, a person, they all exist. So they're reflecting sat. But not only do they exist, a lot of them can exist self-reflexively. They're conscious. They carry out conscious processes. I mean, I don't know what a plant's consciousness is like or what an animal's consciousness is like. I don't know if I can even make any claims on behalf of them being conscious. But I think in regular mundane experience, we would say they are animate objects. There's life in them. At least life processes happen. So unlike a chair, a plant, an animal, and a person reflect not only sat, as the chair does, but also chit. But, and notice how we, we go from the sample set of all things. All things reflect sat, but then we narrow it down and say, there's a smaller Venn diagram within that that reflects chit. 
Now, the next Venn diagram, the smallest Venn diagram of them all is those that reflect Ananda. So get this, Brett. Ananda is bliss, bliss in and of itself. The reflection of Ananda in the mind is experienced as joy, positivity, life-affirmingness, enthusiasm, delight. In fact, you could say the two most God-intoxicated states is enthusiasm and I guess gratitude right? Like reverence. There's something about these two things. Like I'm just grateful for this moment. I'm enthusiastic <laughs> for about this. Meaning I am experiencing what this tradition would call chamatkara, aesthetic rapture, pure, simple wonderment at the miracle of my own being here. The joy of existing in and of itself is wonderful and intoxicating. When does that happen? Often that happens when the, the subtle body, meaning the mind, is purified, is made a good mirror. The, the degree to which the mind is purified, to that degree, Ananda will be reflected as joy. Mm. Everything's reflecting Sat, that's a given. You as a conscious being are going to be reflecting Chit, that's a given. But now that you've taken up your practice, now that you're inquiring into the subtlest facets of your experience, now that you're touching more and more interiorized states, more and more do you discover your capacity to reflect your true nature as bliss itself. And so you feel in your subtle body, i.e. the mind, more bliss. How nice. So that's, I think, a living testament, Brett, to what this practice does for us. We do experience more joy. Yeah. And it's like uh, almost there's a subtle shift from like, man, I was dreading, like when I think about reincarnation, I was like, oh, bro, I don't think I can come back here like anymore. And now it's like, fuck it, dude, bring it. That'd be awesome. Why? Maybe I'll come back as like, who knows? It'll be awesome. And that's like a really tangible, like life. Like, it's just, it's just like, yeah, it's going to, it's impacted my day-to-day stuff and it's super tangible and real. And, and, uh, you facilitated it, bro. No, you, bro. Dude, this All is props to the Lord himself. It is by grace and grace alone. But brother, this stuff, this kind of stuff like delights me to no end just to hear, about joy and about the fruits of spiritual practice. You know, one thing is for sure, whether we get to enlightenment or not, even in the sense that enlightenment, let's just say it doesn't exist. Who cares about enlightenment? One thing is a a fact. Once you start living spiritual life, you will be happier. It's a given. Like you'll be happy because there are so many more ways to be happy and in more sustainable ways too, you'll be happy. So joy will always increase when anyone sincerely takes a spiritual life. So I think Kat will be delighted to hear this. Because when we're in times of struggle in our sadhana, we remember, wait a minute, I'm, ha-, and she just said, I, I, I take this over anything because even the struggle is more meaningful than whatever was there before. So life affirmingness and Brett is, you know, a living testament to the increased life affirmingness. You know, Swamiji would say kind of along the same lines, who cares about hell? I happily go to hell a thousand times and I'll happily incarnate over and over. He even said, you know, to that exact, I, I'll come again and again and again. I will incarnate over and over. I'll suffer a thousand hells. Why? I don't know. Why could I, he say that? I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I'll suffer yeah. a thousand, but you know, <laughs> I could probably take another human life maybe, but yeah. Um, so that's all I got for today, but thanks. Thanks for uh, giving us some context and we'll see you later, man. See you, Brett. Have a beautiful day. god bless brett yeah man it's like no oh my god there's some metal statements right there's some i remember around swamiji puja you know so you're not supposed to say your mantra that's like like the most taboo thing like to say out your mantra 
And I was doing a puja, I forget, there were some people here. I accidentally said it, but not the whole thing, like a little of it. I had said a little of it. And then I was like, oh my God, I blew it. I like blew it. I said the mantra, you know, like, oh, it's ability to liberate me is now no longer cogent. Like it's gone. Oh my God. I really got into my head about it. It's one of those cases where religion gives you more suffering than what you previously had. I really got like, oh my God, oh my God. And then that same night I was like staring at Swami Vekaranda and I had this deep sense of, wow, fuck enlightenment. Who needs enlightenment? <laughs> Michael, who needs that? Enlightenment can go screw itself. I no longer want enlightenment. Who cares if the mantra gives me enlightenment or not? More importantly, I enjoy saying it. I enjoy repeating it all day. All day long, I repeat this mantra and it brings me great joy. I'm just going to keep repeating it and see if that joy diminishes as a consequence of having accidentally spoken half of it out loud. And the joy did not diminish. And so I thought, okay, well, why did I say it half out loud? Because I was doing a puja for, to help people, you know, like to, to increase the spiritual vibration of the room for those who are here with me. And I'm like, if that's the reason I miss out on liberation, that's a good reason. Right? If like somehow or other, the purpose that I wasn't liberated was because we were doing exactly what Swamiji told us to do, then so be it. And funnily enough, that experience helped me understand what Swamiji was saying, which is like, who cares about liberation? Forget your moksha, forget your liberation. Serve the one God worth worshiping. My God, the lowly, my God, the sick, my God, the poor, my God, the wicked, the sum total of all human souls, the only God in which I believe. You know, this feeling of like, and not only that, it freed me from this feeling of, I need to get anything from spiritual life. It's enough. If moksha doesn't exist, I'll still do what I do. If all of this, someone asked me on like an atheist, uh, like kind of interview, they were like, what would happen if all of your beliefs were proved false? You know, and I was like, first, I, I like to think that I don't operate on a lot of beliefs, you know, as, as a principle, we're not belief oriented or, or, but I'm like, yeah, let's, I have a few, let's say I have a few beliefs. Let's say they were all wrong. Let's say there was no such thing as God. There was no such thing as any of these things that I know to be true, that I know to be more real than any of the things that I've known before. Let's say all of that was false, right? It wouldn't change a jot about what I do or how I live my life. You know, even in a Camus sense of meaning making, even like that, I'm like, oh, I'm still going to do this because I can't think of a better way to be in this world. Yeah, right? I, isn't that interesting? The mantra worked. Like it worked in a way that the mantra is its own being. It's an entity. The mantra itself is the guru. So that mantra, and I almost like, I thought I blew it, but no, it was teaching me something through almost blowing it. And then I went to see my guru and I was like, I accidentally said half of my mantra. He almost laughed in my face for, he's like, of course, don't say it. But the half that you said isn't even the mantra. That half, anybody can read from a book. I mean, like, that's not even like, like the, the problem, the other half is the, the secret stuff. You know, like the first part is like, whatever, the rest of it. I mean, that stuff is, and then that really assuaged me. I was like, okay, I didn't say my mantra, but you know, it, the lesson had been conveyed. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. Dear Sarah, please. Jaima. Welcome back. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> Can you hear me? Okay. I'm like plugged into my earbuds. I hear you beautifully and it's been so long since I've heard your voice. So thank you. Oh yeah. It has been so long. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, 
yeah, I'm so happy to be back. Um, you know, I, I think about you guys like all the time and, um, I guess, um, this is kind of like a good, um, like segue into like the question that you were asking is like, um, you know, like what's keeping you like from like realization and, um, like, what's keeping me from realization is like the same thing that was like keeping me from like coming back to the lectures and like, um, you know, just immersing myself in, in spiritual life, um, which is like a bunch of points that have been touched on already. And, um, yeah, wow. Uh, first of all, yeah. Wow. Um, tonight's lecture was amazing and so many great questions. Um, but yeah, I guess, what really hit home for me was um, when Kat was bringing up um, the questions about like health and um, just like the, you know, the bad stuff that's going on. And I think a lot of it for me is like, I really don't feel like deserving of um, like being a spiritual person in a sense. Um, because of like the, the ill health, um, you know, and like just like mistakes that I've made in general that like, haven't been the best for my health and well being, Um, and like, I think a lot of it too, is like, I've, um, always been like this sort of like perfectionist and, um, you know, sort of like a new ageist, I guess you could call me. So like, you were taking those digs at me and, and I, I needed to hear what you, what everything that you were saying. Um, but yeah, I've always felt like I need to like have like a, a perfect body and a perfect mind in order to like be allowed spiritual life. Um, like in a sense, like, you know, how like everything is sort of like a reflection of like your inner world on the outside. So it's like, well, if my outer world isn't perfect, then obviously you know, I'm not, thank you, Amanda. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess just like, I see like a lot of, of wrong in, in bad health and stuff like that when there's really nothing wrong with it, you know, that it's just, it's all life and it's all what happens. And, um, I love also what Brett was talking about is like, and what you were just saying is like, you know, I'll take, a million more lives or whatever. And it's just like, that's like the attitude that you have to have no matter what, like I'll suffer through it. I'll, I'll do, you know, whatever. Um, because there's nowhere to go. Like, that's the thing is like, even if you were to like become enlightened, like when you become enlightened, you become, you know, God is what I see it in in my eyes. Um, and like God is gonna be here no matter what. So like what's what's the difference if like you're here or not? Like who are you really? So um yeah, I was also kind of reminded of like that story um that I think you've told a few times before about like two two like monks who were sitting and they and they asked um you know, like their guru or somebody, they were like, um, you know, how many more lives do I have? And, um, so the, the one asks, he says, how many more lives do I have? And, and the guru says, you have 15,000 or something like that. And he's like, oh, shucks, you know? 
and then the other the other monk asks, he says, how many more lives do I have? And he says, 15,000. He's like, yes. And it's just like, yeah, there's like no reason. Like, I guess like what's holding me back is like not wanting to be here when it's like, I just need to like want to be here. And like, that sounds so like deep and depressing, but <laughs> it is like, that's like a real struggle that like a lot of people have to go through is just like, finding the will to like want to do like worldly life first in a sense um so that you can like access like the higher joys of spiritual life um and so I guess it's kind of like a kind of like gateway that you have to go through like I feel like I've been so like distracted by the world it just in terms of like, you know, having to like, you know, keep myself, you know, surviving, like there's so much you have to take care of, like, especially with today's society, like everything costs money and everything is just like, everything has a cost to it. And you really have to like, be careful with what you do because, you know, stuff does happen. That's maybe not what you want. Um, But just, like, getting through that um, in order to, like, kind of reach a state where you're secure. Um, And then from there, you can, you know, go more inwards, I guess. Um, Absolutely nailed it, Sarah. That's exactly right. The foundations have to be firm. Yeah, exactly. Spirituality does not depend on the foundations looking any which way. So mm-hmm. I think, Sarah, you're alighting upon a very interesting um, error that we make whenever, you know, we used to use a sin narrative. So back then, very prevalent was this idea that I am born in sin. I am an original sin. This body is sinful and I am in a fallen state. Mm-hmm. You know, I've fallen from grace. And so yeah. in order to become spiritual, and that's the problem there, to become spiritual, I therefore have to do a set of things so that my body looks a certain way and that my mind is a certain way. And then maybe, and many traditions don't even think, even then they don't think it can happen, but then maybe I'll attain to this mythical thing called spirituality. So notice it's like body, mind, and then spirituality. So spirituality is like a goal. It's like an outcome. It's like a consequence of the result of being a certain way in the body, being a certain way in the mind and feeling a certain way, you know, then I'm spiritual. Now, once that sin narrative went away, we stopped using the word sin, but the narrative state. And that narrative was like, uh, body is broken. It needs to be other than what it is. Mind is broken. It needs to be other than what it is. So I need to become perfect. I need to grow. I need to heal. And Anna and I were talking the other day about the, this, like, I need to grow and I need to heal narrative, you know, mm-hmm. because it's a very lucrative one. As long as I convince you that you are broken and somehow deficient, I can always sell you something. So I know a lot of people in the new age community, like just buying products because they're trying to get clean obsessively. So I just met a person the other day who was just getting into animas. I'm like, cool, cool. Do whatever you got to do. But it was given a spiritual bend as if like somehow doing animas made her more spiritual. I'm like, yeah, that's in Hatha yoga. But the point is so that you could meditate so that you could realize you were not the body. But there's a sense of which of I can only be spiritual if the body is clean, pure, and functional. Now, this is the danger. It will never be that. So like you said, Sarah, it's never going to be that. There's never going to be a time when the body is healthy. 
health is really relative and what you think is healthy is just unhealthy compared to something else and what you think is unhealthy is super healthy compared to something else so the crazy thing about the body is it will never be healthy that's a mythical standard the mind is never going to be calm and peaceful it can get relatively calmer but it will always kind of have lust and greed and anger so spiritual life then Really, it's in the word spirituality. It's about discovering that you are something other than the body and the mind. So the reversal that needs to happen is this. The, whatever the body and mind is like, you are not that. You are the awareness, the spirit that is ever free, ever pure. And you don't need to become that because you are that already. But on the other hand, well, what does that mean? Do I just not practice? Then I don't need to meditate. I can just like do whatever. I can go the other way with it and wreck the body and wreck the mind. No, not quite that either. The body and mind will never be perfect. But you as awareness, there's still work to be done in recognizing and reclaiming the fact that you are awareness. And to the degree that that's true, what we need is meditation. And that meditation transcends body and mind. So in any case then, whether you're practicing meditation or hatha yoga, the goal is always to feel yourself as spirit, to know that you're spirit, to know that you're awareness. And that, that awareness is ever pure, ever free. So the shift that happens then will, will, will be a shift in which there are no scenarios left. The body doesn't need to look away. And if it looks away, that maybe is not conducive to feeling like the self, because that can happen. You know, if you get the cold, if you get like sick, you might like feel, you not feel the clarity of being the spacious self. But if you know that you are the self, that won't bother you. And if the mind is slightly bogged down by like a negative mood or whatever, if you know you are the self, again, that won't bother you. Finally, though, the mind and body, they do become better. It's true. Like if the mind feels mm -hmm. gloomy from knowing that you are the self, even amidst that gloomy period, it'll go away faster. You won't cling on to it. Because if you say, I feel gloomy right now and I don't want to be, that will add more problems to the moment and you'll hold on to the gloominess. Mm -hmm. Or if the body is sick and you say, I'm sick and I don't want to be because I am the body and the body should be healthy, it'll make the body sicker. It'll be more stressed. But if in the moment the body is sick, you can affirm to yourself, ah, sick or healthy, it doesn't matter. I am the self. I'll take medicine. I'll do what I need to do for the body to be better. But ultimately, it doesn't matter to me. If you can act that way, the body tends to get healthier. Not only that, we tend to make better choices. So like you were saying, if I don't have money, I should learn to make some money. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. Like if I don't have a job, I should probably see to that first. You know, <laughs> so just the other day, my guru sent someone back to go to school and get a degree and get a job. It's crazy because this person is coming to my guru for spiritual instruction. What is the spiritual instruction? Get a job, get a <laughs> livelihood. If you meet real spiritual people, they'll often ensure that the basics are covered first, meaning that you are healthy financially and to some degree, basic level health. But none of that is conflated with spirituality. Making money doesn't make you spiritual. Lack of money doesn't mean you're not spiritual. Um, having health doesn't make you spiritual. Lack of health doesn't mean you're not spiritual. Um, all of that stuff, like psychological wellness, lack thereof, should be addressed. It should, you know, maybe through working on one's self-esteem. Always we say one of the best preparations for spiritual life is just to be good at a craft. The things you learn mastering something like painting or singing or teaching or whatever, the things that you learn through trying to master a craft diligently will serve you in spiritual life. You'll get the sense of self-esteem. Only when you have a sense of self-esteem does it make sense to talk about transcending the self. You can't transcend that which you don't yet even have. You know, so first you must have self-esteem. 
we can't <laughs> cut to the you know spirituality part and like leave behind the basic stuff that we need to do in life to be a grounded settled person so the problem in the new age communities then is the conflation of the two right that the problem is the conflation that somehow or rather my financial physical and mental health reflects my spiritual well-being <laughs> that's the that's the disjunct there spirituality is wholly other thing and that being the case spirituality is therefore not in conflict with working out a good and healthy life for ourselves secularly that's the crazy <laughs> thing like if i am sick i should take medicine and notice there are many people in the new age community who will reel at that point <gasps> you're telling me to t- my medicine is god bro yeah I sorry that's meanish <laughs> No, right? Right? Like, we that all feel so that. Like, we're, like, we're like, my medicine is meditation. My medicine is God. And we say, no, no, yes. don't conflate the two. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think it says somewhere, render unto Caesar what is due unto Caesar. Meaning, for the body, the body needs certain things. The body needs food. Give the body food. The body needs sleep. Give the body sleep. Body needs medicine. Give the body medicine. Don't make a big deal of it because you're not the body. So let the body stay on its level. Now, the mind. The mind needs certain things too. It might need a certain routine or certain like lifestyle, a certain environment, certain friends for it to be kind of calm and settled. Let that be in the mind. You though are somewhere else. Spirituality speaks to that level. We're only really talking about that level. There is a trickle down, certainly. But if you conflate it, if you mix things up, if you put them in improper places, it won't work. There'll be a weird alchemical reaction. You'll lose all three. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think the new phrase for it is spiritual bypassing. But it's not quite the right phrase because I think it's more of a conflation or a mixing up. For instance, science. Spirituality and science are about two different things. Science is about the material world, the world of objects. Spirituality is about the subject, subject the, the, the awareness and the witness. If you superimpose onto the objects the qualities of the subject and vice versa, you will have what in philosophy is called a category error. That's like saying the color two is red. It's incomprehensible, right? The color two is a number. Red is a color. There are two different things. When, I, when I'm dealing with color, I speak in terms of color. When I'm dealing with numbers, I speak in terms of number. New age people can sometimes make this error, this category error of saying the color too is red. When they say, I will japa my way out of this illness. No, you won't. The body belongs to the, the physical world. And science thus speaks to the physical world. So we have to thereby concede to the laws of nature and be practical on the level of the body but that's nothing to me i'm not the body let the body do what the body needs you know like that mm-hmm. spirituality is about the psychic world subjective world so some level of dichotomy is actually important in the beginning not to have this conflation otherwise we'll be applying physical solutions for spiritual problems and spiritual solutions for physical problems and we might find that they don't work we'll lose both <laughs> mm-hmm. so i'll tell you a story once there was this and, and we have mantras, right? These like magic mantras. So one day this boy in the monastery had learned a mantra and it cures scorpion stings. That was the yeah. power of the mantra. By chanting it a certain number of times, it will cure scorpion strings. So he went to this great guru, Swami Brahmananda, and he said, look, I have this mantra. I can cure scorpion stings. And Swami Brahmananda smiled, brought him to the garden and pointed out a leaf. And he says, you know, if you make a tea out of this leaf, it too will cure scorpion stings. <laughs> right like why chant this mantra all day long when you can just use this herbal tincture to cure the scorpion sting that's not what spirituality is for it's not for curing scorpion stings 
Mm. It's not for that. It's for true abiding happiness, which is transcendental in many cases. Now, another example, a boy had gone off to master spiritual life, two brothers. So one brother went off to the Himalayas and just practiced Vedanta all day. The other brother, um, no, he probably wasn't practicing Vedanta. He was doing meditation. The other brother just like lived a regular, you know, pedestrian life, nothing special. And after 12 years, the two brothers met again and they were walking to, I don't know, a wedding or something. And this, I think actually happened. I don't know. I don't know if it's just a story, but I feel like it actually happened. So they get to the river and there's this rushing river, you know, and the brother who had spent 12 years in the Himalayas said, Oh, well, as a fruit of my spiritual practice, I have a city. I can walk across this water. Watch this. And he runs across the river. He manages to walk over the water. The other brother waits a little while and then spends a rupee, takes the ferry and also gets to the other bank, you know? So then the 12 year Himalayan yogi brother was like, so aren't you impressed? Did you see what I did? And the brother was like, well, I also did the same thing. You know, I, I also crossed the river and the brother's like, no, no, but you don't get it. You paid a penny, took the boat. I walked across the river. And the brother, you know, the one who took the penny said, you know, I always wondered what all that spirituality was for. Like, why, what have you gained from all that spirituality? And, and this brother was flabbergasted. He said, you just saw what I gained from my spirituality. You just saw I crossed the river. What are you talking about? I spent 12 years practicing spirituality. And right before your very eyes, you saw the fruit of that. And now you're asking me what I have gained from 12 years. And the brother smiles and he says, Really, you spent 12 years of your life to cross the river. I spent a penny to cross that same river. What have you really gained? And that's the point. It's like we can just as easily cross rivers, cure illnesses, solve our problems with science. Just use science, you know? Mm-hmm. It, don't, don't be anti-scientific. Like science is good. And a lot of people don't like that statement. Science is good. In Vedanta, we say, render unto Caesar what's unto Caesar. But science is powerless when it comes to talking about this. It's only good insofar as it's, the objective world. Science is legal tender in the waking state. If I'm in a dream and I'm thirsty, drinking water in the dream will quench my thirst. However, if I wake up, nothing that was in the dream works in the waking world. So if I won the lottery in my dream, I can't wake up and spend that money that I want in the dream, right? Similarly, this is a dream and science, the laws of nature are legal tender here. Spirituality is about a whole other thing. And what's legal tender here might not be legal tender there, but that doesn't change that it's legal tender here. So if I'm thirsty in the dream, I should drink water. I shouldn't think, oh, but I'm the waking self. No, I should drink water. Similarly, if I'm sick in this waking world, I should take medicine. But that shouldn't change my deep knowing that I am not the body, I am not the mind. And thereby, I can live my life practically and functionally and be happy the whole way through. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll have to think about that for a while. I definitely, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I do think that I really do like get like the body and the mind and, and the spiritual self just like all kind of like enmeshed. And I think that can kind of cause like a lot of confusion in me. But also at the same time, like, I don't really see, like, how they can be separate. Um, Like, like, for example, like, if I, 
like don't eat food for a while, then like that affects my consciousness. Or like if I eat the wrong food, I feel like that like affects my consciousness and that like affects like my ability to realize to like have self-realization, you know? Yeah, well, we all do it. We all conflate the few. And and plus you're right, Sarah, like absolutely speaking, metaphysically speaking, you know, if we're going to be Vedantic about it, then only awareness exists and the body, mm-hmm. mind and world are appearances. So I can't set up a duality between two things where one thing doesn't exist, right? So I can't say mm-hmm. body slash mind is different from awareness because that reifies that body and mind is a thing, but it's not. It has no separate existence apart from awareness. So in, in a Vedantic sense, even, I can't say, oh, a body is separate. A mind is mind and body are one thing and awareness is another. I can't even say that in Vedanta because there is no body and mind. To say less of Tantra, there it's all total integral approach. It's just awareness. But that awareness actually is expressing itself as a very real body and mind. Being and becoming, that, that's Tantra. Whereas in Vedanta, it's just being. In Sankhya, you have two things which is awareness, body, and mind. And Sankhya seems to say that they're not connected. That if I know that I am awareness, nothing that happens on the level of the body and mind matters. But you're right though, Sarah, they are connected because if I know that I am awareness, that does positively affect my body. And if my body and mind are chaotic, I won't feel myself to be awareness. But I have to stop Mm -hmm. you here. What's changing is not consciousness. What's changing is your mind's ability to reflect (laughs) consciousness as an experience. Do you notice the distinction? Yeah, definitely. Self-realization is not hinged upon the body and mind being configured in any which way. Self-realization is a fact now. What you're talking about is not really about being the self. You are the self. You are consciousness, whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not. What you're talking about really is reflecting that state in the body and mind. You know what's happening, Sarah? You're not yet sure of your face. So you're looking for its reflection in mirrors. And when that mirror is smudged or broken or dirty, you freak out because you're like, where's my face? I've lost my face. I'm never going to see my face again. Right? Yeah. That's what we're saying in today's lecture. If you know that you have a face, then it doesn't matter what the mirror is like or whether there's a mirror or not. Meaning, if you're convinced that you are the self, if you know you are the self through this jnana yoga, through this metaphysical speculation, then it won't matter what the mind and body is like. Even when in states where you feel down or occluded or distressed or physically ill, even then, if you're not feeling spaciousness, if you're not feeling joy, it won't change that you are spacious, you are joy. Funnily enough, if that is your experience, if you know that you are the the self, then somehow or rather the body seems to relax and the underlying stress goes away and the body heals. But you won't need it to heal. You won't need it to be any other way than it is. However, you're right. Insofar as there's problems in the body and the mind, I won't maybe have a reflection of my true nature as the self. So what you're saying is correct, which is we should do our Hatha yoga. Why? Because to some extent, it purifies the blood. It purifies the lymphatic nervous system, it maybe sets up a body that would be suitable for meditation. We should meditate. Why? Because it purifies the mind. Insofar as my mind is calm and quiet, then I'm going to notice that I am the self. So of course we should do our Hatha yoga. We should meditate. We should be careful about what we eat. Certain foods will create heaviness in the body, which will occlude my knowing, not my feeling that I am awareness. You're not wrong. They're all integrated and interconnected. Problem comes, though, when we feel like we need the body and mind to be perfect. That's where I think the mistake is happening, where we want the mirror to be perfect all the time. We have Mm -hmm. to accept that liberation, 
Like the definition of liberation is not, I feel good all the time. The definition of liberation is even when my mind and body aren't feeling good, I'm not bothered because I know myself to be something more. Okay. If you feel like liberation is, I always feel good. I always feel spacious. I always feel perfect. You're setting yourself up for a lot of grief, a lot of strife, a lot of frustration, and ultimately failure. Because another truth in spiritual life is call the world, whatever you want to call it, an illusion, Maya, Shakti, reality, whatever you want to call the world. The fact of the matter is in everyone's experience, you will see that nothing lasts. That was the Buddha's final teaching. Nothing lasts. Everything decays. Even if you manage to get some semblance of good health, it will give you maybe a little bit of that and it'll go away. Even if you manage to bring the mind to some poise, it'll go away. So that should not be your goal. Your goal should not be health on the level of the body for its own sake, nor peace on the level of its mind for its own sake. If those are your goals, we're in danger because they're not long lasting. And wait, that's everyone's goals. Everyone wants material satisfaction. What separates a spiritual person is, is that they know that there's no fulfillment that can come through material conditions. They know that no amount of health or no amount of peace in the mind will make them truly happy. So make your goal, Sarah, knowledge, the conviction that you are the self, not the perfect body or the perfect mind. Yes, thank you so much. That makes a lot of sense. I'll have to keep reflecting on that. Thank you. Yes. No, but what Amanda is saying in the chat is true also. Like, don't forget that a strong body and a strong mind are needed. Certainly. One must build themselves up emotionally. One must have a good sense of self-esteem. All of that is, is a given. But one should not obsess over it or expect that it is ever going to be perfect. Basic level of health is required. Not perfect health. Basic level of mental poise and equanimity is required, not perfect mental poise. And more importantly, if you feel like as a result of your intellectual conviction, you somehow should not have any anger, not experience any lust or greed or anything, then you'll be frustrated and disappointed. And plus, when you get a cold, you'll suddenly feel like you've fallen from grace, right? If you think that health is a prerequisite for spirituality, the next time you get a cold, you'll be like, oh my God, I lost it all. All my sadhana. <laughs> Great yeah. monks, get <laughs> great nuns get cancer. Great spiritual masters get angry. It happens, you know. This is the difference though. I'm less likely to act on it. Even though I feel an arising of lust, I'm not going to say, oh my God, there's lust in the mind. I must therefore no longer be spiritual. No, it's the mind's nature to lust. I'm just not that bothered by it anymore. I'm not going to act on it. Why? Because I no longer believe that on the other side of sensual gratification is fulfillment. But that doesn't change that lust still comes. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. I know that no amount of money is going to make me happy, but that doesn't change that moments of greed arise. The mind has been so conditioned over several lifetimes that lust and greed are deeply embedded patterns in the mind. They're not going to go away, but no longer am I going to be kicked around by them. So if that lust arises... I'm very unlikely going to be acting on it. And if greed arises, I'm unlikely going to be acting on it. Why? Because hopefully I should know that oh, I'm not going to get any satisfaction. See, it, again, it's a knowing. In that moment, I know myself to be awareness, not the mind, not the body. And because I know that, I know that no amount of satisfaction on the body and mind will be satisfaction for me. So I won't give into it. But if I, if I thought that the mind should be lustless, I would beat myself up for that right? I'd be like, oh my God, here's the lustful thought. I am a hypocrite. I'm not at all spiritual. Oh my God. No, 
recognize the mind will be lustful. It will be greed, 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 greedy. You don't have to be though. So body, I say, oh, okay. Well, if I am um, healthy, it's I'm spiritual. So the next time I get a cold, I'm therefore not spiritual. I'll beat myself up over that. I'll be like, oh my God, you got a cold nation. You're not meditating enough. What are you doing? You've been, you've lost your jnana. No, I should recognize the body gets sick. I give it medicine. I do what it needs to get better, but I'm not bothered by it. And I, I should recognize the body gets tired. The body gets hungry. I give it food. I give it sleep. What is spirituality? It's the knowing that I am something far beyond the body and mind. And if I know that, then I shouldn't punish myself for what's natural in the body and mind. That's my only point. You know, you should never get to the guilt narrative that I am a sinner. I have failed. I am therefore sali or salid or impure. All of that is untrue. What's true of this moment is that you are perfect and you are whole, not as a body. If you think you are the body and then say you are perfect, you'll be disappointed. The body cannot be perfect. It cannot be whole. It's broken. It will always be. If you say, oh, I'm the mind. And you say I'm perfect, again, it won't work because the mind is not perfect. It's full of dissatisfaction. But if you say I am awareness and then you say I am perfect and whole, then it will work. That's spirituality. You are perfect, but not as a body, not as a mind, as awareness. Don't be too caught up in the body and mind's ability to reflect that. That's only important in the beginning. You know, it's not a statement or a testament to anything. It's just preliminary. That, Amanda, is what Swami Sarvadevananda was probably saying. You know, just that you need a basic level of health, a basic level of financial security, a basic level of mental equanimity for spiritual life to even start. <laughs> and until then, maybe see to it in secular ways, right? Like don't, don't expect spirituality to suddenly be a panacea for all of those ills. Though, look, let's close this lecture with a hopeful note, which is, but the recognizing that you are the movie screen, as Swami Sarvapananda said yesterday, does change the plot. Although at that point, you won't need it to. If you know you are the movie screen, you know you won't get wet if the characters in the movie cry. You know you won't get damaged if an explosion happens in the movie. You know no blood will be left on the movie screen as a result of some slasher film or something. You don't need the plot to change. If you Really, if you know you're the movie screen, you won't need the plot of your life to change. Meaning, if you are enlightened, meaning if you are convinced that you are the self, you won't need the body or mind to be healthy. This is very important. You only need the body and mind to be healthy before you know yourself as the self. Because, you know, you need a mirror to catch the light. But once you make the shift, once I know I'm the self, then I won't need the body and mind to be any particular way. And as we said earlier, that's exactly the necessary condition for the body and mind to be healthy. When I can finally relax, and be kind to myself, when I can finally have the level-headedness to make the right decisions at the right times, naturally the body and mind will be healthy. Naturally my life will go more smoothly. Naturally more opportunities will arise. Maybe people will just like me more, right? Maybe as a result of being so relaxed and spacious, people will be like, yeah, I like that guy, you know? And more opportunities will come. A friend said there's hot girl effect, you know? <laughs> Rather sexist remark, but his point was that um, in society, if you are a certain person, like rich, society values that. Uh, beautiful, society values that. Smart, society values that. So if you are smart, rich, or beautiful, chances are people will buy you coffee. They'll take you out to dinner. They'll give you stuff. They'll want to be nice to you. They'll give you job promotions, et cetera, et cetera. A person who is spiritual might not be beautiful. I've met some pretty butt ugly monks. They might not be intelligent. <laughs> I have met some very simple-minded masters. 
and they might not at all be rich. <laughs> Most of them I've met have been impoverished, yet they have hot girl effect, meaning although they're butt ugly, although they're very simple-minded and not at all intelligent, and although they have no money, wherever they go, they're treated like a king, queen, or royalty. People love them. People are attracted to them. They feel uplifted in their company and their presence, and they give them cars. They give them houses. They donate whole islands they you know think it's like they're reacting to something in them it's not wealth it's not beauty it's not fame even some of these people are obscure and it's certainly not money what is it not intelligence what is it it's spirituality so what is spirituality i don't know maybe you could just say it's just being a good person if you want to be as secular as you want even then my face will be more relaxed. I'll be more kind. Even then you have to say in the most secular terms that life will improve for you in that case. If you're just kinder, if you look calmer, if you have this aura about you of groundedness and centeredness, things will go well for you. You will nail every interview. You will make friends more easily. You'll find romantic partners more easily. More money will come as a result of all this social abundance. Obviously your life is going to be better as a result of awakening, you know? But it doesn't need to be. That's the key. The most important thing is it doesn't need to be. And it doesn't erase karma. So just because I'm enlightened doesn't mean my past karmas won't have their effect. If cancer is to come, cancer is to come. No amount of enlightenment is going to change that. If I know this, I can finally be at peace. If I don't know this, I'm setting myself up for real disappointment and frustration. All right. Nish. Yes, Rory. <laughs> um sorry to disturb you before you go into your um before you end it off. But um I know you're not doing this for any self-validation, you know, but I just wanted to say that bro, it's truly uh most divine experience, you know, like just experiencing you, you know, experiencing your teachings, experiencing what you have to offer. Um Honestly, it's it's a breath of fresh air, you know, being able to just have someone that could guide people through this life of what we what we what we're perceiving it to be, you know. And um, I mean, I think that so many people are missing this. Like, it's almost like a awareness integration, uh, you know, um, or someone to help them. Be a uh, be observational, like of where they are at in terms of where they are at in terms of their awareness. Exactly, you know. Just thank you, brother. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for catching and reflecting and holding space too. I could not do this without you, Rory. Thank you so much. I mean, this is a collaboration. All of us are coming together to create the space for people to learn, in my opinion, the highest spirituality from the great masters, you know, Swami Vivekananda, Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Brahmananda, all these great, this is the top tier of spirituality. And thanks to all of you, all of you who are here, you know, like look at Amanda, built the whole like a discord for us and continues to help new people find places in the discord where they might want to go, continues to answer people in questions and answers. You know, like, can you imagine like all the work that Amanda does on Instagram, like promoting this stuff so people can come here. And then Rory is the one who lets people in, you know, on uh, for puja. Rory is always like letting people in if I'm doing puja or something. And there's this thing called Rory's resources where Rory has just like so kindly created a catalog of 
books and materials. Like these are people who are truly deeply involved in spiritual life. And it shows because they're, they're really helping all of us, you know, here. And of course, those of you who are at all involved in any capacity in the community know that Anna is like quality control. Anna like listens to everything. And is like, I think you can do that better. And I think that, you know, <laughs> Anna's like board of directors. I take my marching orders from Anna. There she is over there. <laughs> She's like my boss, honestly. <laughs> oh. So thank you for saying that, Rory. Thank you all for collaborating and building this together. I think that the more we remind each other of these things, you know, the more that we build ourselves, you know, collectively, you know, the more that the lights could continue to shine, you know, no matter what religion, no matter what country, no matter what ethnicity, you know, it's all yes. one truth. Thank you. Yes. As long as you people are here, I'm here. And even if you people aren't here, I'll still be here. God willing, mother willing. And so many new people in our community, so many old people, you know, there's Mikey. I'm not saying Mikey's old. Mikey's very young. But how long has Mikey, Manda and Rory and all, just Guillermo even from so long ago. And so many new friends like Jessica and Patchouli. There's Patchouli the dog. And, you know, like Sydney, when Sydney came, I was like, oh, sister, you know, Rose came. Like all these people who come, Thais came to the house and I, like instantly, I typically, very rarely, if I meet someone, I'll invite them right away to Tuesday night meditation because I've had some kind of like hiccups, right? Like some kind of like stalkery kind of uncomfortable situations. Um, but immediately when I meet some of you, I'm like, yeah, come over. I just get this sense of and so many of you are like, that. look at all Tori. And if you look at the check-ins, there's so much you will learn from Tori's like check-ins. It's like crazy what, how much teaching Tori does in simply checking in. And if you go to Q&A, Amal and Orion and like, oh my God, there's like Douglas, Amal, people are like holding down the fort in Q&A. I just want you to know that I'm so grateful for that assist. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, like you, the thing, Rory, is you're saying like, oh, thank you, Nisha, whatever. But really, I only see these like, what a collaboration, right? So much is going into this. And it's off, of course, it's all tacos work. We're all of us only just channelizing the power of the avatar. I mean, good God, it, it happened. Like the Christ happened. The Buddha, I mean, okay, we're at 1040 now. So I can start to get a little fanatical before we close. And this is my like cuckoo crazy part. But like, it fucking happened, bro. The Brahma and Krishna and Buddha and Christ, like the Brahma Krishna, Brahma Krishna came. Like what? You know, it happened. And now that the avatar has come, look at Swami Vivekananda. Look at how he's influencing Ford. And funnily enough, you know, Emerson, <laughs> right? Rolf Waldo and Thoreau and, and Whitman proceeding. Like, look at the power of um, this presence here, Swami Vivekananda. And he, like we were saying the other day, kicked down the doors for all this floodgates of Eastern and South Asian spirituality to come into the West. Like there is a power afoot. Something is at work. You know, you might be able to feel it. There's a movement and the movement is the harmony of all religions, the oneness of all existence and the um, innate divinity of the soul. Look at every ashram in India. It's all modeling itself after the Ramakrishna order, whether they know it or not. Service to the individual is worship to God. All the principles are there in Vivekananda, there in Sri Ramakrishna. Of course, there in the Tantras and the Upanishads and the Vedas. So something is at foot. The renaissance of spirituality amongst the youth, something is happening. And here we are. 
what a privilege to all of us be soldiers in this war of, of joy and peace, to be pawns on the chessboard of Sri Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, and Ma. Oh, what a privilege, gang. <laughs> yes. All right. So thank you all so much for coming. It was a true joy. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, before I go, I just wanted to check in with Anna, Rose, and Emerson. To see how you are and what's up, you know, because uh, I'm very nourished by your smiles. And I just want to see if you're like, if you're happy and okay and liked it. So Anna, are you okay? How are you, how are you? Yes, I'm just, I don't know, Nish. I'm back, I'm back in the, in the race. <laughs> I just feel like, my business has taken over me and this this past week i don't know it's not i don't feel that it's bad but <laughs> i don't know if you've seen a show called shark tank no oh, is that where they like pitch their businesses right i think yeah so i'm kind of obsessed with it <laughs> and it's given me like a lot of ideas like to how how to run my business and uh it's been like I, i'm having fun but in the in terms of um managing people it's so hard like it's so hard they're like i got one of them got sick and the other one wants a vacation and the other one wants a free day a, a day off to go to a wedding and it it just feels like sometimes I feel like everything's fine and then out of out of nowhere it's something like this comes up and I'm I feel like I'm losing control and I get so panicky. And truly I've had I've had a hard time like meditating because I'm so so like in my mind right now. Yes. And yes. I don't know, I can't find like the I when I feel stressed, like today, I was so stressed because of all of these girls asking for permissions and missing uh, their 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 job. Uh, I, I was like, oh, I just need to to listen to some niche stuff. <laughs> like I need to hear a podcast or something to ground back. And I did, and but I I had so many things to do, so I wasn't able to like to fully focus. But I was just like waiting, like, I'm just going to let it pass through. Like, I know it's going to go through and and it did. It, it took a while, but it did. And then I was just like happy again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Because they're always in a situation like this when life suddenly like overwhelms us and it happens from time to time, right? We have periods of deep spiritual immersion and then periods where we seem to be losing touch with those ideals and our practice falls away and life becomes busier, seems like more of a big deal, seems like more is at stake and we lose that sense of space. So this happens to us all. Four things. The first one you're already doing, which is to as often as possible, reconnect with the ideas, right? So listen to the podcast, watch like, that's right. You got that instinct. I'm just going to go get a refresher. So these mm -hmm. reminders are very good. But secondly, the next thing, the most important thing, and you know this, is just the routine. Whatever happens in your life, don't lose your routine of practice three times a day, you know, at least half an hour of meditation each time. So that should be unflappable. Like whatever's going on, the, the business is on fire or whatever. You're like, okay, it's meditation time now. I'll attend to that after. So that's the thing. It always feels so urgent, but most urgent is meditation because everything rests upon that. 
If you practice well, you will be in the best place to deal with life piecemeal, moment by moment. So you can't let life then nudge out real life, which is meditation. That's the second thing. Make sure you have your routine. No matter what, you got to keep that routine. And thirdly, of course, is as often as you can, you need to take time out of that. I know there's like a momentum sometimes, but if you can even take not even a day, I'm saying like even an hour or even 30 minutes in solitude with everything kind of pushed away to one side, that's very important. Just to kind of extricate yourself and then go back in. In some sense, meditation is that, right? But like, you know, it can be a separate thing. It's like, okay, yes, keep your routine, immerse yourself in the teachings, but also try to find some solitude, step out of the current and momentum every now and then. And the fourth thing is come into contact with holy people. So yeah, you catch the vibe, right? Totally. No, you know that I love coming in on on Mondays. I feel like if I didn't, I really feel like I'm going to go crazy if I don't, if I don't like, (laughs) I know that it's like touching base and like that calm moment. And like, it's like, okay, maybe this time I'll I'll get back to the momentum, but the the meditation, meditating momentum. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know. It's weird because in this, in this mood that I am currently right now, I feel like, uh, like looking back, like it's so, so toxic because my mind is like, okay, everything is out of control right now. This can be due to the fact that some weeks ago you were more, more focused on meditating and, (laughs) and like taking time off, like when you, you should have been working and maybe Mm. this wouldn't have happened. So it's kind of toxic. I try to not believe that but it does go through my mind. Yes, of course. And you know what? Honestly, like it is very valuable to have a routine only insofar as you get this impression of you're doing both. When it's time to meditate, you're meditating. But when it's time to be in the world and do your duty, you're doing your duty. Where I think it does happen to some people where they have like the, the pendulum swings, where the pendulum swings one end, where that period of their life is just spirituality and like all day is just spirituality. And then the pendulum swings the other way. And often there's fallout. Like the stuff that they weren't attending to in that period of immersion, now they have to deal with it and they lose their games. Like they have to go back to the world. So yeah, that thing happens. That's why sadhana is the main thing not experience you know sadhana is the main thing experiences come and go mental states come and go health comes and goes but sadhana stays i do sadhana all the time and not only that regulation and uh, consistency is better than intensity at least at first i want to make sure that i at least meditate three times a day half an hour each time and then just live my life and the rest of it is just so we don't want to like go deep in and then go deep out it's better to sustainably go right Look, I'm not saying there isn't any truth to your narrative. There could be some truth there, which is maybe at that period of my life, I was not as on it as I could be. And now this is fallout. But the lesson here is, ah, so I should proceed steadily and routinely while still making sure that I attend to the duties that I need to attend to. The second thing is now we have to learn, and this is the, the hardest thing to learn, but while in the world, while doing our duties to not see that as something other than spirituality. But that's mm-hmm. the key. The ultimate secret is to learn that there's nothing that's not meditation, nothing that's not prayer, nothing that's not connecting with the self. Even in the midst of the busiest workday, when you're talking to someone who needs to go to a wedding somewhere, you're talking to God, 
And maybe you have to be stern with God in that moment. Maybe you have to be soft and compassionate and accepting. Whatever the case might be, do what you need to do. But remember, you're doing it for God and to God. And while you're doing that, do the mantra, stay meditative, stay in the knowledge of being the self, et cetera, et cetera. So we must not compartmentalize. There's no such thing as like life and work and spirituality. It's all just spirituality. Right. Thank you so much. That's really great. I'm just really I, glad I, that I that I'm still here. <laughs> yes. No, I you will be. You always will be. <laughs> and thanks for asking how I was. I think that I needed to to talk with you about that. <laughs> But I, I do feel like like when I feel like even if I'm I'm focused on work, I'm always thinking about that. Like yes, good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Uh, um, I just want to say that. I mean, I think that it's it's just natural, you know. Once once we, because we know what the truth is, you know, it's natural to hold ourselves accountable to to actually, you know, um, hold ourselves responsible with regards to our spiritual evolution. You know, it's just to. Start to bring in more awareness. So even though that you think that you know you might you may not be doing as as much as you can in the moment, just start to bring more awareness into each moment, into each interaction with everyone, you know, into each situation, into each task, you know, and eventually, you know, it, it will blossom into one truth. Still, you know. Yes. Yes. I I definitely think that it's like stuck on me now. Like I I it, it every time I feel like like you were saying this uh like bombarded like too many things going on like before I would be like Jesus I can't do this I can't do this and now it's like I'm just gonna wait <laughs> and I know that it's gonna come back to me and then it's clear again. You know, it's like it's like a whirlwind. Beautiful. Yes. Thank you, Rory. Good, good, good. I'm happy to hear that. There's a joke about like if you're a fisherwoman, then you'll always smell like fish. <laughs> you know, kind of like once you touch spirituality, it never leaves you. That smell is always there. You can be in the midst of it, and you'll still have that palpable impression of <laughs> pure awareness. Yes. 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 I think it's on me. <laughs> Thank yes. you. Nick. I love checking in because you know I I wish I could do it more. It's my only wish. It's like I I wish that we could all be closer in proximity. That I could sit with you all and talk to you and kind of check in. But it's nice to hear even a little bit. Oh wait a minute, my wife is locked out. One second. Okay, I just wanted to check in with Emerson. You know, I've been seeing Emerson here, and I, I wanted to see how you are and and if you're all right. Hi. Uh. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um. I um. Yeah. This has been so great. Um. To be able to like. Um. experience like these lectures live i've listened to basically all of the podcasts 
Um, I discovered them. I don't know quite how. Um, I've been on a little bit of, um, I guess my entire life is a spiritual journey. So here I am. And uh, yeah, I'm so grateful to be here and to have found this space and to um, everyone's questions and uh, the whole community has just really been uh, great to, to hear. And um, yeah, I'm a little nervous speaking. I don't know why. I'm like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> It's such a joy to meet you, Emerson, because, you know, it's like, wow, how cool that we live in a world where you can make these podcasts and put stuff out. But there's just nothing like being together, at, even in a Zoom room live, right? Like seeing each other and speaking in real time. It's so cool. I feel like spirituality really, that's where it is when people are just being human together, you know? So I'm, I'm excited about yeah. the podcast. I'm just now thinking like, wow, you know, how many friends and and true spiritual companions come out of just putting out podcast episodes. So I'm grateful to have met you. And thank you for coming, you know, like to follow the scent and, and come and be part of the community in real time is so meaningful to me. Emerson, thank you. Well, thank you for, for having the space to, to have these uh, lectures and for staying, you know, sustaining it and all of the folks who are here who are a part of that, you know, as well. It's really, really beautiful. So it's been yeah, very, yeah. very wonderful to have come into. I like to think, you know, like say this is the last one we ever do. Of course not. As, as long as we can, we'll try to keep doing them every Monday. We've not missed a single one, by the way, in the, I think, last two, two and a half years or so of doing this. Isn't that crazy? Like since we started doing this, we have not missed a single Monday by mother's grace. But I like to think like, okay, at the end of each Monday, like if this was the last time, you know, like if this was the last time we all met and it's kind of like, oh, this is the last day I, I was alive kind of vibe, you know, and I'm always so satisfied. Like the feeling of this was just, just great. Thank you, Mother, for bringing all of us together. Rose, happy? Well? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. The whole night, I felt like I was supposed to ask you a question, but I have no idea what, because every time I thought of something, you answered it. Uh, I don't know. I, I kept thinking about um, that, like flow and knowledge and, and all, how... I keep wondering, is that like the knowledge of riding a bike? How like you could you could work really hard up to the point where you take the training wheels off, but once you're once you actually ride the bike, it never goes away. Right. Yes. I think you're wow, that's a really interesting metaphor because you're right, it never goes away. That's what Swami Sarvapinanda was saying yesterday. We're going this point. He's like, it never goes away. And and it's hard to really explain why. Because everything in the mind goes away. Mind states change. So to Sarah's point, if my mind is not reflecting the truth of my being, how is it that I can still quote unquote know in that moment that I am the self? That's really weird, right? Like the mind is not reporting back to me that I am the self. Yet I'm convinced that I am the self. What on earth happened? That's why we say it's something metaphysical and transcendent has occurred. It's a shift. It's a sudden shift. And I think riding a bike is good because, you know, as long as I have the training wheels, it's there. But then if I kick off the training wheels, there's a moment of tremendous instability, which is sadhana, sadhana, sadhana. I fall and scrape my knees. And somehow or rather, one day, I am just riding my bike and there's nothing to it. 
that's the crazy thing. There's nothing to it. This realization that I am the self should be as natural as breathing. Even unconsciously, I know it. It's, that's, I, I, I can be conscious of breathing, right? And if I'm not conscious of breathing, I'm breathing anyway. Similarly, my mind in a moment of deep meditation or winning an award or something, any, so many things reflect to me the joy of the self. And when my mind is reflecting to me the joy of the self, in that moment, I'm breathing consciously. But even when the mind is not reflecting the joy of the self, I'm still breathing. I mean, I'm still the self. <laughs> so yeah, I like that metaphor about riding a bike. I would add that we're, we're talking now as gyanis, but as yogis, the metaphor of riding a bike is also interesting because meditation, often we say is not something you do, it's something that happens. So what we talk about when we talk about meditation, really we're talking about dharana which in Sanskrit means concentration. That's why today we made a point of calling psychic control a concentration practice. And next week when we talk about tips for psychic control, you'll see that really there are tips and hacks and tips uh, for concentrating. That's what we do. We concentrate, which I guess you could say is totally allegorical of trying to ride without the, the wheels. But I mean, the training wheels. But when the moment I feel I'm in flow and the bicycle, and then there's wind in my face, that's called dhyana meditation, you know? And if I lose myself in that experience, that's samadhi. If the bike goes away, if I go away, I'm immersed and, and totally just absorbed in the riding of the bike, that's samadhi. But until that point, it's the fluid, unbroken stream of oil flowing to the object, right? That's the metaphor. We get the unbroken stream of oil. I think that's a little like what you're saying, flow state, right? It's just bit. natural. Yeah. I, yeah. I just keep thinking about it. I, I'm, so I'm a really experienced artist and I, and I, uh, there was a time where I knew exactly how to get into flow state at any point. Um, and the way that I did it was not by concentration. It was not like something that I pushed into. It was something that I had to like really relax into anything that was coming up to distract me it's like no nah, it just goes away and all that was left was was flow state i'm wondering if that is that this might be getting into next week but is that uh, well it actually in some sense is getting into last week or no two weeks ago do you remember we had i i don't I wonder if you were in the room, but Westifer and I were having like this back and forth debate. Anna was there too. It was Anna, me and Westifer having this extended conversation about the different modalities of meditation where I was speaking on behalf of the yogic modality, which is very like, I'm going to take my mind. I'm going to wrestle it away from all this nonsense. And with, but of course I'm making it sound a lot more violent than it is. It's an art. It's an art, but it's a willful art. I will keep my mind fixed. And Sri Ramakrishna, he says it so beautifully. I was just reading, and this is getting into next week's material, but tie the mind to the foot of the deity like a silk string. And then he said, but it has to be silk because any other type of material will hurt the deity. Those feet are very soft and delicate. What? I guess what he's trying to say is that like, it's a balance between effort and effortlessness. If you effort too much, it won't be a sustainable meditation. You'll get frustrated. You'll exhaust yourself. You'll be lying on the floor thinking you're a failure. But if you don't effort enough, if there's no string at all, you will just like think about this and that. And like you said, um, there won't be that pushing away. Things will take you. Thoughts will draw you in and you would just be daydreaming. You won't be meditating, which is nice. And that's valuable too. But meditation is a balance. It's stira and sukha. It's easefulness without soporphoric torpor. It's strength and will without clenching the anus, right? So it's somehow a perfect balance between strength and release. 
effort and effortlessness. Okay, that's meditation. Silk thread. Now, of course, this is a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is strong arming it. On the other end of the spectrum is releasing it. The Buddhist and the Tantrikas, a lot of times we're closer on this end, which is more of like hold space, be spacious, you know, just like sit and savor the awareness, rest in the awareness in which things appear. Oh, there's sadness. I'm not going to follow the thought that I'm having the thought is more fascinating to me now than what the thought is. Rest in what you are. So that might be closer to the art experience of just kind of being open to the moment Thoughts aren't that big of a deal. I guess you could say the knob on sensation has turned up. So the moment is more immediate. There's more of a smell, a taste, a sound, less of a thought, less of an emotion. I am a little, in my practice, more Raja yoga oriented. I'm a little more on the strong, fierce kind of thing where it's like, no, no, no. I have a thing that I'm meditating on. This is the object of my meditation. I have to keep my mind there. As many times the mind goes away, I have to bring it back there. You know, that's kind of more my bent in my practice. But as Anna Westerfer and I were discussing, they're all valid modalities. They're all different ways and they're none of them mutually exclusive. So while my formal practice is I'm going to keep my mind fixed on this, when I'm not practicing, I'm also usually practicing. You know, Green Day, when Green Day is not making records, they're probably also making records. I, I was watching a documentary about how prolific Green Day is because apparently they used to release stuff under different names. That band just really loved recording where they just recorded and released music under anonymous names that weren't. So I thought, oh, when they're not making music, they're in the studio making music. I'm like, oh, that's what spiritual life should be like when I'm not meditating. I'm probably practicing something out of the Vignana Bhairava, you know, which is all very like spaciousness, be in the moment kind of thing. So you're not mutually exclusive. You might like getting into the flow state in this new way. It might be just another way that you now know how to get into the flow state and you just add it to your repertoire, right? I think, I think that will be what it has to be because like I, it's in my brain already. I know how to use it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Yes. And also there's other things like, for instance, okay, getting into a flow state is intrinsically valuable, but it's not the ends. That's the thing, right? So like it feels beautiful. A flow state is beautiful, but notice in an art practice, the flow state is there insofar as you're doing your art practice. Yeah. It's not that sustainable though, right? Like outside of the art practice, it's not there. So you could say then, okay, what we want actually is flow throughout all of our life. Not just when I'm taking a solo on stage with my band, right? I want it to be everywhere. And we're, the world is full of miserable, great artists who, while they're on stage are happy and in heaven, but the moment they get off, they're back to the, <laughs> so we have to do a little better than just a flow state than just concentration. That's why we say there's an added component, which is the increasing of reality of subtle experience and the decreasing of reality of gross experience, which is beyond flow states. It has to do with real concentration. And, and maybe sometimes Yes, concentration implies flow state. It's that and more, you know. So that's the thing. It's that and more. Yeah. Good. I haven't checked in with you in a while, so I'm happy to have done that. Next week, we'll get more practical. We'll talk about the techniques and et cetera, et cetera. So thank you all again so much for coming. I'll just chant and we'll call it a night. And may you practice beautifully and deeply tonight and every night. Om 
स्थापकाय चाधर्मस्वधर्मस्वूपिने अवतार वरिष्ठाय रामकृष्णाय ते नम ओंबगम्य जामहे सुगंधि पुष्टिवर्धनम उर्वाकमिव बंधन मृत्योर्मुक्षीयृता Om Lord Shiva thou who art the three-eyed one remove me from my bondage as you would pluck a cucumber deftly and gem- gently from its stem that i may cleave to immortality om peace 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 be unto us all